of Crime and Passion by Jonathan Harnish published by Babadood Press 36 Mary Quita Lane Corrales, New Mexico 87,048 United States of America While the publishers and the author have taken every care in preparing the material included in this work, any statements made as to the legal or other implications of any transaction, any particular method of litigation, or any kind of compensation claim are made in good faith purely for general guidance and cannot be regarded as a substitute for professional advice. Consequently, no liability can be accepted for loss or expense incurred as a result of relying on particular circumstances on statements made in this work copyright Jonathan Harnish 2015. All rights reserved, no part of this publication may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any way or by any means, including photocopying or recording, without the written permission of the copyright holder, application for which should be addressed to the publisher. Crown copyright material is reproduced with kind permission of the controller of Her Majesty's Stationery Office, British Library cataloging and publication data. A catalogue record for this book is available from the British Library, ISBN 13, ISBN 10, printed in the United States of America and Great Britain prologue It was nothing political, although it might seem so to some. The scheme was that of any hothead who grows weary and slowly sees the light and ends by devoting himself to the cult of luxury. One very important detail, everything can be acquired in solitude, everything that is, except character, my actions were but an act of revenge, of defense, that I may be appreciated, it begins on the day of my 18th birthday, although there's no one else on earth who could tell you that, I'm young, tall, awkward, and sure, I have taken my father's bicycle, now that he has bought a car, the bike is pretty much mine to use, I don't mind biking much but I prefer horse riding, I enjoy watching the tall, Grassy turf slide past me, spreading over vast meadows, hills, and through lily fields. Together, we splash through small streams and rattle over the washboard of the dirt roads. I'm a man on a mission. Together, we come to a stop on the grounds of the old farmhouse, the rotten old building at the edge of the property that the company has never bothered to tear down nor seems to know exists. This suits me fine, of course, as a child. I had played there in the dark cool shadows of aged wood it was my hideaway, my castle. I slipped from the saddle, tossing the reins over a well-worn post, and then walked towards the black, rectangular opening of the farmhouse door. I blink as I step into the cool interior, adjusting my gaze to the shadows. I see a glimpse of smooth white, of naked skin. Close your eyes, she commands. For a moment I comply but cannot keep my gaze from her for long. Close your eyes, she repeats when I look again. She stands and her beauty is before me. My eyes grow large, I fall to my knees. Chantal I whisper. She holds her hand out. I kiss it, trembling slightly. Aha! You have found me, she blushes and then giggles. You must be John Marshall, or Juan Marsmanal I shudder with shock that she knows my true name. A knowing smirk appears on her lips. Fine, I will call you John, she shrugs, your friend Seth told me about you, I stare at her mouth, unable to make eye contact, my hands are clammy at my sides, my heart pounds, I have changed little since I last saw him, I choke, 
Chantal relaxes her face and smiles. Where are you from? Nowhere of any I'm importance, I stutter. Nor is my family of any importance. I grew up in the factory. You are sweating, she notes. I'm nervous, nervous. Why she opens her eyes widely, and I know I should relax. But I cannot. Because I'm suddenly blind and deaf, I whisper, wiping my forehead. Chantal giggles. I do not believe you she teases. I smile, a glimmer of wit returning to my mind. It's not your fault, Chantal. Nature has been so kind to you, thank you. She grins and then gestures for me to join her on the low bench that is built into the wall. She kneels before me, and then slowly removes my boots and begins to rub my feet. Now, close your eyes, she purrs, unbuttoning her shirt and revealing her small, natural breasts. The glimpse of white blinds me and I can't help but shut my lids. I slump against the wall like a dead man motionless, my eyes to heaven. Later, she dresses me carefully, lovingly. I'm distracted, staring into space, glancing at my horse, whose eyes were fixed on me knowingly. Do you regret it? Is there something wrong? She asks quietly. This is new for me, I acknowledge stiffly. I'm sorry. I reach into my pocket and pull out a handful of cash I had shoved there. Is that so? She waves it away. Well, now you are an expert. No more worries. I exhale slowly, and then put the money back in my pocket. Are you married? I ask finally. No, she answers lightly. I stretch out my arms to her. Are you engaged to marry? She leans against me, her touch light, her presence warming. You are sweet and gentle, she notes seductive. And, Master John, seduction is the key to all that you want in life, is that so I ask nonchalantly. But a part of me takes heed. What is it that you want she asks cryptically. I shake my head. I'm not sure. You seem so bright, Master John, she says, looking up at me with earnest eyes, her fingers lightly play with her hair at my neck. Tell me, I'll not say a word. I look inside my own mind and sigh earthly immortality, I reply, but that is impossible she teases, glory, I continue, to achieve great praise, heavenly bliss splendor, hum she purses her lips, yes, I nod triumphantly, the greatest man to achieve glory was Che Guevara, she says, after a moment's thought, you know, he used a very scientific method to achieve his glory, seduction I guess, Chantal walks to the doorway, and then looks over her shoulder, Che Guevara is a hero to everyone who knows about him. He started with nothing and he became everything. How did he do it I insist. Chantal smiles as I answer my own question. Seduction, I say quietly. I know of no better way, she sings. Could you conceive of a better way than that used by the very man who gave us our freedom I wait, and then join her at the doorway? Perhaps I'll be joining the priesthood, I mention. She shakes her head as I approach. Perhaps the military. No perhaps, I nod. She holds out her hand, and I bring it to my lips. I do wish you much luck, Master John, she says firmly, her eyes shining. I would have liked, very much, to see you again. But I'm off to the city in three days to be wed to a very wealthy man, and I must retire. I start in shock, and then concede. You have found what you want I had the right mentor. She bats her lashes. I apologize. I am still a little confused. Chantal. Chantal removes a small portrait from her cleavage. 
It's folded and tattered. She hands it to me. Have this, she insists. I look at the portrait of the familiar man, the man whose face is known to so many. It is hand-signed. Che Guevara, I breathe, and it's signed. Is it real? Chantal nods. You understand. I have no fear that you'll find everything you desire. At that, she turns from me and whisks out the doorway. Farewell, John Marshall she calls over her shoulder, and then she is around the corner of the house and gone. And so my fate was set, although even without the portrait I might have eventually found my way. But from that moment on, I had no other direction. And of course, I never saw Chantal again. Chapter 1 in the old, beat down back room of my father's factory. The factory he manages, but does not own the ancient father. Parrick sits in priest robes. The man's face is lined and sagging in places, his hands covered in purple spots. Sometimes I think he couldn't bear to live another year, but then he speaks, his voice is deep and full, and I think that perhaps he'll live forever. Hurry, John, he says with quiet authority. Mr. Roman will be here any minute, I pull the priest robes over my head and then fumble with the Roman collar, my hands shaking. Finally, the clasp comes together and I jolt as the ground begins to shake beneath me it growls like metal sliding against the bright sheen of a guillotine blade flashes before my inner eye. I gasp and look to Father Padrick, who leans unsteadily against his desk. Dust seems to rise up from every surface and dance in the air. The mounted silver cross behind Father Parrick trembles and quakes and then seems to leap from the wall. Father I cry, and in two swift strides I pull him to my side of the desk. With a loud, resonating clang the cross plunges into the wood floor, recoils against the wall, and then falls back down, shuddering. We also shake as the earthquake's final tantrum rocks the entire factory. When the ground is still, Padrick sags into my arms. I'm amazed by how light he is. Are you all right? Father I say, my voice trembling still. Fine, he wheezes slightly, and then coughs. You I nod. Etipater, I say quietly, taking comfort in the familiar words. Paddock smiles. The earth moves to shut us up, you little cricket. You're always mumbling to yourself like you have a mouth full of cherries. He looks up. Bookworm, he accuses. I laugh with him. Glad to shake off the last of my fear. His brows suddenly lower. But John, do not forget that the mayor is a strict conservative. Your morals have already been questioned. He turns and looks directly at me. Then what turned their decision in my favor I wonder. Padrick looks at me meaningfully. The time you studied theology with me, he says. He steps to me and reaches up to my collar, straightening it. And because of your background, he says more quietly looking me in the eye. They want someone who will speak Spanish to the children, to open their minds to learning new language, I scowl. The past I want to put behind me is now the only way I can step up in this world. What a joke. Be careful, now, with that portrait of yours, he says bluntly. Thank you, father, I incline my head. It is always kept safe, I still do not understand why you move always against convention. He complains. To allow hypocrisy to grab hold of you will destroy you. I study myself in the mirror. Padrick stands straight next to me, his back like a post. Stand straight, he commands. Chin up. The way you carry yourself will show your background. Think to yourself, I'm confident. I am strong. I'm worthy. 
I mimic Padrid's posture, thinking of the life that stands before me. And Mrs. Roman, what is she like? Oh, he laughs. She is a beautiful creature, of the highest moral character and virtue. My eyes widen. Is that so far? The parrot looks at me from the corner of his eye. It is I who suggested your services to her, so do take heed of my good name, he says gently. Have six months of your life ever been made miserable by love? Chapter 2 In the afternoon, my father, a disheveled, poorly dressed, pathetic shell of a man, storms into his house with a flask in his hand. He hasn't shaved or bathed for days, and the smell compels me to drop the book I was reading and exhale fiercely. Perhaps he guesses the cause, for he marches over to me, grabs the book from the table, and throws it to the ground. He grabs me by the collar, pulls me from my chair, and throws me against the door. I stumble upright and prepare myself for his rage. Do not lie. How did you get to know Mrs. Roman father screams? I have never spoken to her, I say quickly. I have never even seen her, except in church. You have looked at her, have you not? Tell me he demands. When I'm in church, I see no one but God. I lower my head, looking up at him from the top of my eyeballs. Mr. Roman told me that his wife wanted you over there as a nanny. He yells, confounded. Why would anyone want you? You are as stupid as your mother was. I stare warily, terrified. Did he mention what I shall receive for my services? I ask meekly. My father moans, leans his head against the wall. 400 a week. My shoulders slump. I do not wish to be a servant, I whisper. Do you think I wanted my son to be a servant? He roars once more. Why can't you just work at the factory, like everyone else? You've got to learn to stand in line. Now look at you. You think you better than me, don't you? Why shouldn't I be better than you? I sneer. You're disgusting. My father's response is to strike me across the face with the back of his fist. I feel an explosion of pain in my cheek and for a moment I'm blind. That's it, I'm through with you. Do not bother this family ever again. Do you hear me? He shouts. Fuck you I scream and then run to the room I share with my brothers, stuffing everything I can call mine into a duffel bag. Fortunately, there is not much. You are ungrateful my father yells. I can't wait until Mr. Roman sees how ungrateful you are. Chapter 3 Mr. Roman meets me outside the door to his house, where I stand with my duffel bag in hand, staring up at all the windows of the enormous country home. He shakes my hand like a professional, scrutinizing me with dark eyes, Clyde Roman, he states matter-of-factly, his swift nod brings to his side the man who had answered the door, who comes to stand next to me expectantly. John Marshall, I return. Come on in, then. Alan can get your bags, Mr. Roman looks around expectantly and coughs, um your bag, that is, Alan sniffs and then follows me as I enter behind Mr. Roman, I have matters to attend to in my study, John, Mr. Roman says with finality, you may wait for Mrs. Roman in the drawing room, I wonder what a drawing room is, but I don't have to wonder long, Alan gestures for me to follow him down the main hall and then opens the third door and ushers me in with a wave of his pale hand. The room is huge. I feel myself dissolving within this glorious room, melting into the soft, suede chairs, disappearing among the statues and candle holders of the mantel. I wonder if I should sit beyond the French window that leads into a vast garden, 
I glimpse a colorful shadow between the folds of the long, white drapery. She stands by the window like an angel in a dream, wearing a stunning mother-of-pearl necklace, which reflects light with the intensity of the sun. The light seems to circle her, to surround her with all colors. The drapery blows her hair gently. She stares at me in silence, her eyes liquid, her lips slightly parted. A slight blush rushes over her cheeks. I stare without thinking, unable to speak. Is she the enemy? Who is the enemy? Mrs. Roman steps closer to me and takes my hand. Relax, my dear, have you come to see my husband? Mayor Roman pardon me she begins again. Are you here I interrupt her. I have come here as a child care worker, mom, through Father Padrick. We two are just inches from each other. We examine each other carefully. You are John Marshall she says calmly, although her eyes betray an inner excitement. I nod. I'm Mary Bell Roman. She holds out her hand and I shake it gently. It is a pleasure to meet you, I reply. There is a long silence while we look at one another, and sure. So you know Latin she inquires. Yes, mom, she nods thoughtfully, and then frowns. You will not scold these poor children, will you scold them? Why you will be kind to them, won't you? Promise me, I smile. Of course, let us walk through the garden and discuss the children's lessons, she proposes. I follow Mrs. Roman through the French oars. The smell of fresh growing things, of air unpolluted by my father's stink, fills my head and makes me dizzy. But is it really true she says suddenly, stopping beside a fountain. Do you really know Latin I laugh quietly. Yes, mom, I know Latin as well as his reverence, Father Padrick, does. I pause, looking at her shyly. He has even been good enough to say that I know it better, her eyes widen. Is that so she smiles a small smile and then continues walking through the blooms. You will not strike my children, even if they do not know their lessons, I nod. Of course, she glances at my hands as I clasp them together in front of me. How old are you, sir she demands, parenthetical pet peeve. Parents who teach their toddlers to use sign language to answer the question, how old are you instead of teaching them to say the number. In other words, you get a three-year-old who shoves three fingers in your face instead of saying three, almost nineteen, I come to a halt and turn to Mrs. Roman, Mom, I'm shaking. Please forgive me, I smile pleadingly, feeling like a child, whatever for she exclaims, I have never been to college, I haven't many friends, Father Padrick will give you a good account of me, she nods, he already has, but if my family speaks ill of me, Please do not believe them, I beg. Enlightenment brightens her brow. Of course, she says, resting her hand gently on my arm. Without thinking, I pick up her hand and bring it to my lips. We both halt. I stand slowly, my gaze locked in hers once more. I will never beat your children, mom, before God. I swear it. Call me Mary Bell, she insists. We stare into each other's souls, oblivious to the outside world. Just then, the sound of footsteps on the gravel paths forces us to look back to the house. Mr. Roman approaches, his arms swinging only slightly. Mrs. Roman withdraws her hand. There you are, John, Mr. Roman says when he is within hearing distance. I must have a word with you before you meet the children. With a nod and a smile, I join Mr. Roman on his way back to the house. The whole way, I can feel Mrs. Roman's eyes boring into me from behind. 
We enter the house and Mr. Roman leads me to the fifth door of the main hall. It is his study, filled with a fat leather couch and an enormous dark wooded desk. Mr. Roman walks to his desk and pulls out a cigar from a portable humidor. He lights it and looks up at me, where I stand twitching before him. Father Patrick tells me you are grounded and well behaved. Everyone here will treat you with respect, thank you. I manage a faint smile. If your work is good enough, I might help settle you later on in a little business of your own. The wild hope of someday being my own man shines through my eyes, thank you. Mr. Roman, I repeat, Mr. Roman reaches into his desk and pulls out one of six checkbooks. He quickly writes out a check. Here is your first week's salary, he says. If you do well, I'll give you the rest of the month at the beginning of next week, thank you, sir. I close my hand tightly over the check, wondering what I would do with the money. I insist you do not hand over a single bit of this money to your father. Do you understand I nod fiercely? Of course, I growl. Of course, Mr. Roman grins. Now, sir, I've ordered the rest of the household to address you formally, as sir. He looks me up and down, his distaste showing at the side of his nose. That jacket is dreadful, Mr. Roman matters. He walks over to a nearby closet and pulls out a suit coat. He hands the coat to me. It is the most well-made piece of clothing I've ever seen. My hands tremble with fear of dropping it or having it taken back. Soon enough, however, I do drop the coat. I drop it onto the couch to make way for the shirt and pants that Mr. Roman heaps on me. Why don't you change here to see if it fits? He insists. I'll be right outside. In short order, I'm a new man made of a soft black suit and a simple blue shirt. I feel awkward in the clothes the pants too high on my waist, the tucked-in shirt fluttering against my skin. I scratch at my hip as I walk into the hall. A perfect fit, Mr. Roman announces, as Mary Bell walks up behind him, two small children following behind her. Very handsome, Mr. Marshall, she agrees. I smile, straight turning up. Behave yourself like a gentleman, sir, Mr. Roman reminds me. I notice Mary Bell's light smirk, she rolls her eyes behind her husband's back. I struggle not to join her mirth. Yes, sir, I agree. I look to the children. Despite their snub noses and carefully combed blonde hair, they remind me somewhat of my brothers. And who might you be I ask. Mary Bell smiles. The oldest is Christian, she says, touching a hand to the head of the larger child, who looks to be about four years old and I'm Remy the only slightly smaller child pipes up. Mary Bell hushes him. You might have your hands full, with these two, she smiles. Now, off with you both she insists. The children tear down the hallway, pushing each other playfully. Your duties won't begin until tomorrow, Mr. Roman explains, turning back to me. But, starting tomorrow, you are their caretaker and their teacher you will be with them from the time they rise until the time they fall asleep, and it is your job to fill their days responsibly and usefully, I nod carefully, feeling all of a sudden very unprepared, then I look behind me to my old clothes, which lie in a pile on the floor, might I have some time to myself in my room I suggest, Mr. Roman nods, very well, I have some business to attend to in any case. Your room is just up the stairs there. He points to a dim doorway at the end of the hall, to the right. 
The day starts early tomorrow we need you up with the children at 7, I turn to Mrs. Roman, excusing myself, Mom, as I walk up the stairs, Mr. Roman's voice echoes behind me, Well, what do you think he asks, I pause midway up the stairs, wanting no, needing to hear her answer, I'm not as thrilled as you, she says quietly, my heart sinks, what's the point she adds, you will be replacing him before you know it, I turn my face to the wall, wanting to cool my burning cheek, only if I must, Mr. Roman says, in any case, I can't have my household staff looking like vagabonds, my pride forces me to run for my room, although my shame follows swiftly behind. I resolve never to wear those old clothes the clothes of my past life again chapter 4 I'm up before the sun in the morning, splashing water on my face and shaking out my new suit, at 7 exactly, I wake Remy and Christian, who tumble from bed without complaint, in short order, they are tidied up and ready for breakfast, I usher them into the breakfast room, feeling like a new man, the suit, which itched at me only yesterday, seems to mold to my movement, the house, so clean and bright and vastly different from my home, seems to breathe life into me, I feel clean and bright, too, Mr. Roman winks as I enter, coffee, John Marybell asks, as the boys take their seats, I hesitate slightly, and then join them at the table, at the empty setting near Mr. Roman's left hand, Remy's face lights up before I can answer, can I have some coffee, Mother he begs, may I, not can I, dear, Mary Bell corrects him, she glances swiftly at me, and no, my dear, you are too young yet, I wink at Remy, I'll not have coffee either, I announce, we will both just have to wait, coffee might make us forget our lessons, Remy nods pleasantly, absorbed already in his eggs, okay, he mumbles, soon, the two boys have emptied their plates and begin longingly to look out the window, through which bright morning sunshine is beginning to pour. Speaking of your lessons, we'll begin with Latin, today, I announce, the children moan. Latin is the root of all languages, both beautiful and brute, I lecture, Mary Bell's gaze inspiring me to impress the children. But I promise that we will concentrate on the beautiful and not the brute nothing common and nothing dirty. Remy and Christian giggle, and Mary Bell leans back slightly, relaxed and seeming pleased. I pull out a beautifully leather-bound copy of the New Testament and present it to the children. They examine the book with enthusiasm and excitement. This is the Holy Bible, I explain. I know the Bible Remy bounces in his chair. Very well, then, I suppose we are finished for today, I joke. The boys both cheer and I wave them to quiet. I must warn you, I continue, I will often ask you to recite your lessons from this book. Remy, you will be first, Christian silently takes the book from my hand. Christian should go first Remy insists, making a face. He likes to read, excellent, Christian, I concede. Go ahead, open it where you'd like and say aloud the first word of any paragraph, Christian thumbs through the text. The New Testament is a guide for every man's conduct, word for word, if you know it by memory, then you will always know what to do when you are troubled, I explain to him, his eyes light up with a fierce understanding, Mary Bell smiles, Christian, why don't you choose something to challenge Mr. Marshall she asks, Christian opens the book to a random page, 
paper teet et dabi dabiter, he reads with difficulty. Petit et dabita verbis querite et invenitus pulsate et aperita verbis, I recite from memory, glancing up at Mary Bell's eyes, which shine with excitement. Omnis enum qui peti accipit et qui querit invenit et pulsanti aperita, I grin. Shall I continue? Mr. Roman looks at his wife, wide-eyed. Mary Bell's eyes are shut, her face in ecstasy. What does it mean? Remy demands. That's the important part. Isn't it I say solemnly to him? It says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Remy's eyes open wide. Really he whispers, For every one that asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth. I look up at Mary Bell, to find her eyes locked on me, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. I conclude in a hush, holding her gaze in my own. Do you know Horace Marybell breathes? I'm forbidden to read him. He is crude, I say shortly. Although, I must admit I have let some of his words slip into my head on accident. Yes, we share a secret smile. Remy takes the book from Christian. I want to try, he cries. He opens the book and strikes his finger to the page. He squints at the letters. What does it say? He whispers to Christian. Christian looks and whispers back. Et illi domna Remy says proudly, I smile. Et illi dominus eus huge serve bone et fiddlis queer super porca fusti fiddlis super multi constituum intra in gordium domini tui, I begin. Is that the one Remy nods vigorously? Matthew 25, 23, I conclude. You must be very ambitious, my friend. Chapter 5 In the date that follows, Mr. and Mrs. Roman host a dinner party, to which I'm invited. After only a short time, it becomes obvious that I'm to be the main attraction, I navigate deftly through landmines questions about my background, my family. Before long, Mary Bell saves me by requesting that I recite the Bible for the group, as I had at breakfast the previous day. Soon, I'm less an object of curiosity and potential threat and more a performer, a simple spectacle. I'm comfortable standing before them, hearing the Latin escape from my lips. If I close my eyes, it is almost just the same as being in Father Parrick's study. After everyone agrees that I'm quite remarkable and an exceptional nanny, they leave. I sit uncomfortably beside Mr. Roman and Mary Bell, watching as the other servants clean up after the party. Finally, Mr. Roman turns to me. Mr. Marshall, sir, I would like to contract you for the next two years as a live-in caretaker and language teacher for our children. Mary Bell smiles behind her husband, and yet they both frown when I shake my head. No, sir, I say firmly, if you should ever wish to get rid of me, I would have to go. An agreement that binds me without committing you is not on equal terms. I refuse to make such a contract. Mr. Roman smiles when I have finished. You are certainly a quick one, aren't you? I must respect your reasoning. He pauses, appraising me once more. I see a lot of opportunity ahead for you, young man, he concludes, I nod, stifling a yawn, I'm tired of his judgment, if you will excuse me, I gesture meaningfully, I'm tired and need to sleep, as I walk past Mary Bell on the way to the door, her eyes look up into mine in a sudden flash, I lock her gaze in mine, my lips curling in secret knowledge, charming, isn't he I hear Mr. Roman say, as I exit the room. I pause just outside the door, 
Mary Bell's response is only silence. Chapter 6 I walk down the dirt path that winds from the Roman's home into the wooded park nearby, reading a book, when I hear movement in the bushes. Two large shadows emerge from the woods, stepping toward me forcefully but slow. As they come closer, I recognize their faces as those of boys I went to school with Shane and Chris, the boys who had made school a living hell for me. Their eyes are filled with the casual look of vengeance. Chris stops nose to nose with me, punching a finger into my chest while Shane stands guard, clenching his teeth. Little John Marshall, the pretty priest, Chris hisses. What a beautiful suit, Shane sneers. What are you doing in such a fine suit? I try to move away from them, but they block my way. Oh, are you too good for the factory now? Little priest Chris grabs me and holds me in place as Shane plunges his closed fist into my nose. I collapse to the gravel path, as I'm suddenly blind and deaf, praying as they kick me and grind my face into the small stones. Finally, they leave me, beaten to a pulp, lying bloody and bruised, my clothes torn. I lie in the cold afternoon, waiting for my head to stop swimming, waiting for a reason to stand again. I drift in and out of a miserable fog until, oh a woman exclaims. Cool hands lift my throbbing head and brush along my sides. I cannot open my eyes, but I know it is she. Do you not worry, she says in a voice as cool as her hands. Everything will be fine, I try to nod but groan instead. Harold, get help, Mary Bell commands. I hear an angry muttering, and then nothing more. When I awaken again, I'm warm between soft sheets. Something cold and wet is on my face. My eyes flutter open to see Mary Bell, a washcloth in hand. She sighs with relief when my eyes open. Oh thank God, she says, quickly pressing the washcloth back to my face. I wince at the pressure, although the cool water eases the heat of my wounds. A young woman, wearing a maid's uniform, enters the room. Do you not worry, Mom, I'll take care of him, Mary Bell blushes avoiding eye contact with the woman. That will be fine, Lauren, she says, standing and leaving the room in a rush. Lauren picks up the wet washcloth and continues to wash my wounds. I open my eyes and stare confusedly at her. What happened? My voice is hoarse, strange to my ears. Lauren puts her finger on my lips, turning my words to quiet mumbles. S-H-H-H, save your strength, she whispers, her voice soothing. Then she leans over and presses her lips softly to mine. Her mouth is cool and gentle, like her hands on the washcloth. My eyes flash open and then, like she's cast a spell over me, I sink into the pillow, exhausted, and fall fast asleep. Chapter 7 A week later and I'm back on my feet, my bruises healed and my cuts healing. My face must be presentable enough, because I'm invited again to one of the Romans' dinner parties. We sit at the grand dining table, passing huge silver platters heaped with food from hand to hand. I sit uncomfortably in my still new clothes, and pull at the lapel of my suit jacket from time to time. What a feast, Clyde one of the guests, Harold Lawrence, exclaims. Who else would have us celebrate the birthday of the Cuban Revolution? Mr. Lawrence sends a meaningful glance to me. Those revolutionaries are right where they belong, what does he know? I wonder rapidly, I'd thought that I was so careful, the Lord has his place for every man, some are born to be great men, and they prosper, 
others he leaves the rest of the statement up to me to fill. The men at the table laugh and I struggle against my rage. The Lord deserts them all. In the end, Mr. Roman finishes quietly. Mr. Lawrence nods pompously. Men must learn to accept their lot. If they do not accept their place, then we must teach them. Thank God that communist nonsense hasn't spread. Don't you agree? Mary Burley turns to his hostess and then glances at me, who sits at her left hand. Yes, of course, she says quietly, nervously. My fury is too intense to bear and I stand, my eyes boring into Harold Lawrence. You must excuse me, I say very carefully. I have to look after the children. I walk out of the room as gracefully as I can, still clutching my napkin with a firm grip, hearing the animal sounds of their mastication fade behind me. Once the fury wears off and my legs are tired from pacing back and forth in my small room, I walk to my bureau and pull out a small frame portrait of Che Guevara. I stare at the picture, slowly tracing the scrawled signature with my thumb. I shove the portrait back into my bureau when I hear the bedroom door creak open behind me. I turn to see Lauren walking into the room, as she had begun to do every night since my injury. You again I say, trying to make my irritation sound like tease. It's that time, she says easily. Don't you want something to wear tomorrow? I stand there, wondering for the seventh time if there was some better way to do this. Do not be shy, she commands. I shrug and begin to strip, handing my clothes to her one at a time. As I'm removing my pants, a knock sounds on my door. John, I hope you are not upset by the dinner conversation. Mary Bell calls sweetly through the wood. She opens the door at my silence to find me in my underwear and Lauren holding my clothes. She blushes fiercely, parenthetical pet peeve, underwear with worn out elastic that keeps slipping down my hips as I walk. Forgive me. She croaks, it is quite all right, Mary Bell, I say softly, glancing towards Lauren with a smile of friendship and nothing more. Lauren is kind enough to wash my clothes every night, since I only have one suit. You have caught us at the somewhat awkward moment of exchange, Lauren half-heartedly attempts to hide a triumphant smile. Mary Bell looks at me, satisfied with the explanation, although a small frown wrinkles her brow. I want to reach out to her, to tell her that of course it's not what she thinks, that I could not dream to touch another woman. But I can't. If you will excuse me now, I must be off to bed, I say carefully, trying to exude charm and reassurance, which requires a somewhat less respectable posture, of course, excuse me, Mary Bell breathes, grinning slightly as she glides out the door. Lauren follows close behind, but pauses a moment to look back at me. Sweet dreams, she bids, with a smile that marks me hers, I shudder slightly, and then slide beneath the sheets chapter 8 my wounds healed and my heart light, I walk through the streets of town with Mary Bell Roman, feeling the strength of her fingers against my steady arm, calling out to the boys from time to time when they seem to be headed for trouble, are you content, John she asks presently, I sigh quietly, not fully, I admit. She doesn't seem too surprised. Why is that she asks? I frown as I consider an honest response. I'm not sure if happiness is my ultimate goal. I appreciate the opportunity your husband has given me. But I'm always striving for for more purpose. Mary Bell slows down her pace and I slow with her. When I look over at her expression, 
I can see that she is blushing. Is everything okay? I ask, hoping that I haven't upset her. She stops and looks into my eyes, her expression affectionate. My heart leaps. No, I it'll be no secret soon. I am the sole heiress of my very wealthy aunt, who's just died. I nod, waiting for her to continue. You are so wonderful with my children. I would like for you to accept a small present as a token of my gratitude. It is only enough to buy some linen, a larger wardrobe perhaps. But she opens my hand with her fingers. Yes, I prompted her. There is no need to mention this to my husband. She blushes once more. I feel myself burning with anger at her presumption. I may not have come from the best of families, but I'm no liar, Mary Bell, I say sternly. I have never been, nor will I ever be, a man who is predisposed to secrecy, and with that, I turn and stride back the way we had come, disregarding the car that waits for us to complete our outing, determined to walk the whole way back to the manor. Perhaps by then I will no longer feel quite so angry. You could have shown more graciousness, she says quietly, to my retreating back. What Mr. Roman gasps loudly as I pass silently by his study later that evening. My footsteps halt of their own accord as I wait to hear Mrs. Roman's response. I'm guilty, she mutters. How could you tolerate such rudeness? And from a servant he demands. John has proved himself to be more than a servant, she argues quietly. All people of his condition are considered servants, Mr. Roman interrupts. I hear the sound of the sleek rollers of his desk drawers and the rustling of paper. He can't treat you this way, Mr. Roman insists. He will take the money from me, that's for certain. I will have a word or two with Master John, Mary Bell sputters. What? Wait, Clyde, that's not what I meant. If this is what Master John costs me, his voice is contemptuous, I bristle at the tone he takes with her, and then remember my own harsh words, silent, shamefaced, I creep away from the scene, when he offers me the money, I take it, at our next outing, Mary Bell turns to me nervously, toying with her fingertips as the children scurry behind us, well, are you pleased with my husband she says finally. I try not to let the confusion of my emotions show in my face. Why shouldn't I be I say, making my voice easy. He has given me a substantial bonus. Mary Bell smiles in relief. We continue on, marking a couple that passes by with their arms overflowing with books. Mary Bell finds the bookstore with her gaze. Give me your arm, she commands. I thread my arm through hers companionably, marveling at the lightness and coolness of her touch. She marches me into the bookstore, and the children follow. I look around at all the books with awe, as always. Somehow, seeing so much knowledge assembled into one space takes my breath away. Finding a new title from a favorite author of mine, I take the book from the shelf and flip to page one. Mary Bell escorts her children to the back, where there's a small play area, and hands them large, colorful picture books. On her way back, she takes her time browsing books and picking one or two off the shelves at every pause. As she returns to the front of the store, I glance at the price of the book and then set it on the shelf with this eye. She unloads a stack of books into my arms. Now you have more books to advance their lessons, she says to my wondering gaze. She knows as well as I that I will devour these books much more hungrily than will Remy and Christian. I smile at her gratefully. 
With a pamphlet in his hand, Christian runs up to me as I sit in the drawing room, reading alone one evening after supper. Master John, what is this book about? He asks. I glance at the small book in his hands and then look at Mr. Roman, who reads a paper just outside the French doors of the drawing room, on a sofa in the garden. I stand and walk to him. Mr. Roman sets down his paper and acknowledges me when I come to stand in front of him. Yes, John he says amiably, to provide me with material for answering Master Christian's questions about the greater world. Perhaps you would allow me to take out a subscription at the bookseller's Mr. Roman rubs his chin. Not a bad idea, he concedes. I wouldn't dare fill their heads with fiction, of course, I know you wouldn't want any of that nonsense in your home, so no political pamphlets, then Mr. Roman jokes. He laughs, and I enjoy the moment of familiarity. He slaps his hand down on the armrest of the sofa. Very well, you will have your wish. He proclaims chapter 9 when the doorbell rings the following afternoon, I hear Father Patrick's voice at the front door. I'm here for Master John, he says. Before long, Alan leads Father Patrick to the drawing room, opening wide the French doors to let him into the garden, where I'm giving a lesson to Christian and Remy. Mary Bell sits at the table, watching with a slight smile, while Lauren is seated nearby, polishing silverware. Father. What a delightful surprise, Mary Bell exclaims, rising to her feet. Would you care to join me for coffee and a pastry? Thank you. But I have actually come to see John, Father Patrick says, inclining his head ever so slightly. I look up at him with surprise. I have an important matter of good fortune to discuss with him, and I wonder if you could spare him for the remainder of the afternoon, Father Patrick continues cryptically. If it is important, you may certainly have him, Mary Bell looks at me, her brows knit together as if with worry, I stand and follow Father Patrick to the drawing room, not here, he says, to the church, certainly, Father, I answer, what do you mean you refuse he demands, looking down on me as I light the candles at the altar, I sigh silently, I appreciate everything you have done for me, Father, if it wasn't for you. I would not have my job and I would not be receiving the recognition for it from the whole town, don't give me credit for your gifts, he says kindly, all I did was recognize them you have made yourself a success, well, father, I want to continue with my success, I have no wish to marry or to tie myself down, I glance up at his withered face, I don't want to marry for money, I say finally, my voice hushed. I feel my eyes glaze over with the thought of Mary Bell. I want to marry for love. Father Patrick walks over to me and stops my hand. He stares me in the eye, forcing me to focus, and then looks down at the unlit candle in my left hand. Examine well what is going on in your heart, my son, he says, taking the candle from me. He turns away and begins lighting the other candles. Don't make up your mind just yet, my dear boy. He says finally, think it over, and come back in a few days to give me your definite answer. She's a good girl, and pretty, and she loves you, although I don't know what you've done to deserve it. I stare at him blankly. Is that all? Father I say finally. He waves me away. Three days, John, he says. Think it over. I don't need three days, I say with a note of finality. I know my own mind, when I return to the manor. I find Lauren waiting for me at the foot of the stairs. 
she bends swiftly once I step into the hall, dusting the banister rather than acknowledge that she's been waiting for me. I stare at her, my face a blank as I try to think of something to say. It's nothing personal, even I hate myself at the thought of saying those words. Instead, I walk past her expectant eyes without a word and walk swiftly to my room. She asked Father Patrick for my hand, she can get my answer from him. I hear the sound of her sobs and run the final few steps to my room. Hours later, a soft tap sounds on my door. I look up from my book. Come in, I call. Mary Bell steps hesitantly into my room, and my heart skips a beat. John, I know it is none of my concern, but she looks down at her feet, and then sighs and seats herself beside me on the bed. Lauren told me about her proposal, and your answer. Because she is my maid, I feel a slight obligation to make a final plea in her favor, do you I say without thinking. I continue before she can answer. I appreciate your position, madam, but please do not bother to make an argument. I assure you that my mind is made up, but, John, do you realize the extent of her inheritance? You could be making a huge mistake, I'm well aware of these matters, madam, and my answer remains the same, I look her straight in her lovely, luminous eyes, praying that she would understand me. You see, Mary Bell, as lovely as she is, and as wonderful as the offer seems, I do not love Lauren, Mary Bell's lips seem to tug upward at the corners without her permission. What part must love play in such a union? Love can develop from the prosperity that you two will share, she insists, although her eyes tell me she is lying, I bristle. Anyone who believes that has not had the good fortune of being in love, I say hotly. Mary Bell's eyes widen, she covers her heart with her hands as a blush covers her cheeks. Is that so? She asks quietly. With great difficulty, she tears her gaze from my own and leaves chapter 10. Mr. Roman stands at the front door, surrounded by servants who hoist his suitcases one by one. Mary Bell joins him at the door followed by Lauren who tugs at her mistress's suitcases. The carriage is ready, Mr. Roman's voice echoes up the stairs to me as I begin to descend. Where are Master John and the children gripping a small bag in my hand, I enter the front hall. Remy and Christian are fast behind me. Mary Bell looks up as my foot leaves the stair, as though sensing my presence. She blushes and begins to fuss with her purse. Mr. Roman looks over at her. Dear, your face is flushed. Are you all right? Mary Bell coughs sweetly. This trip is so consuming. It gives me a headache every year, she responds. Mr. Roman belt out a laugh. That's like a woman. You're always in need of repair, he turns to me. John, be sure you have brought all you will need, he commands. We will stay at the Hamptons estate until the summer season. There will be no back and forth, I nod to him, and then follow as he and Mary Bell leave through the front door. The servants follow behind me, carrying their and the boys' bags. Mr. Roman and Mary Bell sink gracefully into the front of a long limousine, while the boys and I climb into the back portion, which is partitioned from the front with an electrically operated glass window. The staff strains and groans beneath the bags, unloading and cramming them all into the trunk. The driver tugs at his gloves, and then we are off. When I catch sight of the Hamptons estate, my eyes widen in astonishment. The partition is down, and Mr. Roman sees my reaction. I see you enjoy the view, he says. 
The house has been in the family for generations, but we take care to keep it updated, I nod wordlessly, staring at the enormous grounds. It looks like a park, footpaths are lined with huge walnut trees, whose vast leafy branches rise up to staggering heights. The manicured lawn in front of the house is landscaped with fountains and gardens. Gardeners and house staff flit about the lawn, performing routine maintenance on a mass scale. At the foot of the garden lies the large estate, a humongous stone mansion with several levels and a forest of brick chimneys. The limo pulls right up to the front door, where a crowd of staff wait to greet the family. The butler opens the car doors and gestures to the maids and houseboys behind him, who rush to grab the suitcases. Mary Bell and Mr. Roman exit through their doors as the boys and I climb from ours. As Mr. Roman greets his staff and receives a short report from the butler, Remy and Christian run through the front door and up the stairs. I hear their feet on the floor above as I peek into the massive entryway. Your room is upstairs as well, Mary Bell's voice lilts close behind me. I turn to face her. Come, I'll show you, she says. After we've all settled into our rooms, Mary Bell accompanies me on one of the estate's many gravel paths as the children race back and forth between the walnut trees, capturing butterflies with nets. Christian runs up to us, proudly displaying his latest catch. Look, Master John, look what I caught he exclaims breathlessly. I look at the brilliant little thing that bats wildly against the soft netting. Well done, Christian, I smile. You've caught yourself a white admiral, such a militant name for such a delicate creature, Mary Bell says lightly. We share a smile. Master John, come chase the butterflies with us Remy shouts from not far off. Oh yes, please Christian begs. I look at the two boys, and then at Mary Bell. Only if your mother agrees to join us, she blushes. Oh, I don't think so. Do you come, mother? We have enough nets Remy insists. I catch her eye and turn up my hands in a gesture of innocence. Mary Bell looks at Remy and then at me. She shrugs as well, then grins hugely. Oh, well, all right Christian sprints to the field to get the extra nets. I take Mary Bell's hand in my own and tug her onto the field. We run like mad, my heart seems like it will burst from the wild joy that fills me. Mary Bell smiles and her teeth seem brighter than the sun. We collapse, laughing into the grass, when it seems that all the butterflies have fled. Oh John, I haven't had such fun since it begins to rain. To Paul, actually. Oh, no Mary Bell exclaims, holding her arms over her hair as she scrambles to her feet. This way, I shout gleefully, tugging at her arm. We race to the trunk of a nearby walnut, and watch for a moment as the boys stare up at the rain and then begin to look at the muddied ground with renewed interest. You boys get inside right now Mary Bell calls to them, and they race each other to the front door. Mary Bell and I watch as the boys sprint to the door, laughing. Her arm rests lightly on mine. She shivers lightly with the cold, and I move my arm to her shoulders. Should we make a run for it I suggest. She shakes her head, looking up at the rain. Not just yet, she croaks. I turn to adjust as she looks up at me. We stand, face to face staring into each other's eyes. I find myself leaning towards her, just wanting to be closer. Her lips part slightly as she breathes in my scent. We are less than an inch apart, 
The memory of the house's long bank of windows flashes before my inner eye. I pull away, blinking. We'd better wash up, I say finally, refusing to look at her. Supper will be soon. We walk back towards the house in the heavy rain. At supper that evening, Mary Bell meets my eyes. I bring the boys into the dining room, and then quickly looks back at her plate. Mr. Roman seems not to notice. Business in the city was tiresome, he says. That is why competent men such as myself should be in power. These socialists, now, who stir up the average American with their lofty ideals, have no concept of how things must be. Mr. Roman places a piece of bread in his mouth. They are born to do the work, and they do it well, he continues, talking with his mouth full. But men such as myself are born to run this country, to organize the workers and keep them safe from themselves. He turns to me, and I school my features. How did you manage with my family while I was away? He asks. Rather well, although it is a relief to see your return, I say, nodding slightly. Yes, it's quite a relief, Mary Bell echoes me quietly. Well, I'm glad to hear it, Mr. Roman booms. I know how difficult it can be for you when I'm gone, he turns to me. Women, you know they don't know what to do with themselves without a man around, I grit my teeth and smile. Instead of responding to her husband, Mary Bell looks over at me, her expression concerned. That night, I kneel before my bed with a Bible in my hands. Staring up at me from between the leaves is my secret portrait of Che Guevara. Dearest hero Che, tonight I pray, you would be proud of me, Che Guevara. I have won my first battle in my own private war, using your own tactics as I pertain them to the sin of seduction, so that I can move up and ahead, so I can reach the glory, power, and fame that you have succeeded in doing, through all that you've done, and from where you had begun, with nothing, like myself, dear J, I shall continue to fight until I can claim total victory over Mary Bell's heart and cuckold that self-important bourgeois fool she is married to, then they will see, I lift the picture from the Bible, place it into a wooden box on my nightstand, and then slide the wooden box beneath my bed frame, with one final deep breath, I switch off my bedside light chapter 11 the next morning's breakfast sees me sitting across the table from Mary Bell, alone, Christian and Remy have already been excused and are racing across the lawn with their butterfly nets, the gardener waters the plants that grow just below the windowsill beside us, where has Mr. Roman gone so early in the morning I lift a half full coffee mug to my lips, Mary Bell catches my gaze and holds it, my husband will not be joining us, her voice is thick with unsaid words, I smile mischievously, he is busy all day, examining the property making sure that the caretakers have been doing their job, I glance over at the window to see that the gardener has moved on, and then lean across the table to grasp Mary Bell's arm with my hand, help to save my life, I whisper insistently, speaking to her heart with my eyes, Mr. Roman forbids anything to do with Che, he'd kill me if he knew I had a secret obsession with such a man, a radical Marxist revolutionary, it's like we live in another time period or something and he's not a banned book but a banned person damn politicians, well, most of them, see Che, he was a good man, he was no Saddam Hussein, but I must confess about this secret portrait I must keep hidden, 
to prevent Mr. Roman from knowing about, he would, he would kill me, I'd at least lose my job, and I'm in a much deeper revolution myself, a personal one, Che inspires me, I had, I must confess to you, Mary Bell, that I have a, a portrait, I have hidden it under my mattress, Mary Bell looks down at my hand wonderingly, go into my bedroom and see, I encourage her, slide your hand beneath the bed frame, you will find a shiny black box on the floor near the wall, it contains a portrait she breathes, I've a second favor to ask you, Mary Bell, I must beg you not to look at the portrait, it is my secret, is that so she frowns at me, pulling her arm from beneath my hand, I smirk at her reaction and nod my head, yes, madam, Mary Bell glides out of her chair and leaves the room, I watch the doorway through which she exited, biting my lip, that evening after sunset, Mary Bell and I sit out in the garden with Mr. Roman and his dinner guest, Mrs. Driscoll, who are engrossed in a political discussion, Mr. Roman leans in to listen to Mrs. Driscoll's latest point and nods his vigorous assent, noticing that Mr. Roman is too focused on his discussion to mark his wife, I lean and whisper in Mary Bell's ear, were you able to retrieve the box she stares blankly at her husband and his guest? Nodding ever so slightly chapter 12 days pass, and I walk inside from a long walk outside, Mary Bell's there, she tells me, Mr. Culvert and Mrs. Driscoll are just visiting, you may feel free to join us when you like, I incline my head, thank you, Mary Bell, that sounds very nice, when I enter the drawing room, Mary Bell is seated on the couch with her hands in her lap, clasped around a cold sun tea, I take my seat next to her. Mr. Culvert and Mrs. Driscoll exchange a glance, it is funny seeing you here, Mr. Culvert, I begin, I was just speaking of you recently, oh he smirks, yes, you know my friend Seth the lumberman who lives in the mountains I nod, yes, he has recently offered me a position as his partner, Mary Bell looks up in shock, he suggested that my friendship with you could be beneficial in terms of our future business, I continue. I assure you I would be most willing to help, should you ever ask, Mary Bell bursts, would you do that, would you leave your pupils I smile at her, without answering, the room is silent for a moment, I deliberately stretch my leg so that my foot brushes up against hers, she gasps and starts at the shock of my touch, she drops her tea and the glass lands wrong, shattering against the floor, Mr. Culvert and Mrs. Driscoll stare at Mary Bell, she turns to me. Why did you kick me she demands, I know that she's just lying to hide from them, Mrs. Driscoll smirks and turns to Mr. Calvert, Mr. Calvert, may I show you the most interesting thing I noticed in the garden she says, why, yes, I'd be delighted to follow you, his face is equally smug, the two rise and swiftly exit, on her way out, Mrs. Driscoll gives me a knowing smile, John, I must order you to be careful, Mary Bell begins, as soon as they are out of earshot, concerning my employment, you may order me all you want, I return stiffly, otherwise, it is my right to give you the orders, I pause a moment to let her think on this, madam, tonight or two I will come to your room, there is something I must say to you, I place my finger over my lips to indicate her silence, when she nods, I stand and stride quickly from her presence, when the clock on the side of the house strikes two, I am still awake, staring at my bedside alarm as the numbers slide into place, 
I get out of bed and stand up, feeling a little clumsy. When I reach the door next to mine, I put my ear to the cool wood, no noise but the sound of Mr. Roman snoring. I creep to the next door Mary Bell's door and pause for a moment before opening it. Mary Bell lies in bed with her eyes closed. The candle next to her bed is still burning, illuminating her face. After a few seconds, she opens her eyes and sees me standing before her. She sits up, pulling the sheets up to her chin. How dare you? You have no right? I walk over to a bed and rest my head on her knees. What are you doing? She whispers. This has gone too far. I raise my head and look into her eyes. They are filled both with fear and longing. I raise myself up, placing one hand at her side, the other alongside her face. What are you doing? She presses against my chest with both hands. I duck my head and kiss her softly. She moans pitiably, and then her lips begin to move against mine. When we break for air, she gasps. How were you so sure I smile and wordlessly turn off the bedside lamp? The next morning, sunlight pours through my eyelids and I'm being shook. John, wake up, Mary Bell's voice sounds in my ear. You have to go. Good heavens, if my husband finds out I'm dead I roll out of her bed and begin to dress myself, moving slowly and carefully. Would you regret your life, if you died or very much at this moment, she answers, smiling. But I wouldn't regret having known you, I return her smile and then walk swiftly to the door. John she calls, I turn, yes, Mary Bell her face becomes a frown. Who is my rival I beg your pardon the portrait you had me rescue. Whose is it, John, I must know, I laugh, but then school my features. There is no woman I love more than you, Mary Bell. I open the door wide and march into the hallway chapter 13 that afternoon, as Remy and Christian engage in silent reading. I watch from the schoolroom as Mrs. Driscoll and her poodle climb into the limo. She does not wave goodbye. A few moments later, Mr. Roman bursts into the room. Remy and Christian raise their heads in alarm. That woman is unfathomable to me, he says, turning back to the hall. She was supposed to stay through the week he turns to me. John just the person I was looking for. Yes I incline my head. As you know, it's almost the 4th of July. This year, Senator Brightley will be participating in the parade she's from this area, you know, and she wishes to make a special stop at the church. It is one of my duties as mayor to prepare the town for her arrival. It is important that we have all the clergy at the ceremony. I nod my agreement. Of course, of course Father Parrot must attend, he is the deacon, after all. But Padrick insisted that he would not be willing to attend unless you agree to accompany him on the altar. He looks straight into my eyes, certainly, I agree, glad that the request is all. I myself have another request to make of you, he continues. Mary Bell suggested that you would make a wonderful guard of honor for the parade. If you agree, I would like to see you carry out both duties for this celebration, of course I exclaim, me, the son of a factory man, heading up the 4th of July parade, how exquisite, smoke break, bells begin to chime as the townspeople mill in the streets, the air is filled with excitement, still more people hang out of windows, they shout down at those in the streets, joining in the excitement, horns blur as we near the scene, the people in the streets step back onto the sidewalks, clearing a path before us as we march down the street. I find Mary Bell watching with her children, 
sitting sedately on the small deck of her friend's townhouse. Her face lights up when she finds me, she smiles brightly. The two women who stand next to her frown one points her finger at me and the other shakes her head. Mary Bell gives the two women a nasty glare, and they walk away with their noses in the air. I lift my chin and push out my chest, which is covered with gaudy cloth and a long white sash. I return my focus to Mr. Roman, who rides before me in a low car. Behind me rides Senator Brightly and her husband in a flashy black Rolls Royce. The townspeople cheer even more loudly at my back than they had to see me come. Soon, we arrive at the church and the procession halts. I run through the church doors, hating my gaudy parade clothes for weighing me down. Father Patrick stands ready, waiting with a small bundle in his hand. It is my cassock and surplus. You are late. Change quickly, he commands cheerfully. He helps me dress, his lips tighten as he catches sight of my spurs. We must go at once. You will accompany me as I show the senator to the altar. The enormous church door swings open. Senator Brightly and her husband enter, followed by Brightly's security officer and personal assistant. She looks up at the high vaulted church ceiling. You've made some improvements, she compliments Father Patrick. He inclines his head in acknowledgement and offers her his arm. Together they walk to the altar. I follow behind with her husband, who seems a little bored. When Patrick and Senator Brightly reach the altar, the senator stares in wonder at the new installation a brilliant work in stained glass, overlaid with a crystal cross which gleams in the morning sunshine that filters through. The face of Christ is a masterpiece, both pitiable yet ever-loving. Senator Brightly bursts into tears at the sight. We watch with a horrible awkwardness as Father Patrick pats her back. The bells of the village burst into ecstatic peals once more. I'm glad you like it, he says quietly. As we leave the church, I fall into step behind the Lawrences. The nerve those people have, says Mr. Lawrence, who is the head of the community board. In the very guard of honor, if you ever become a dear, maybe you should appoint a valet bishop, his wife giggles. This is no laughing matter, he whispers sternly. The separation of church and state is the very foundation of this country, and now the tutor gets to play politician and priest, all in one day, Mrs. Lawrence nods. Quite right, dear. It's shameful, the Lawrences enter their townhouse without realizing that I'm behind them. I exchange a glance with Father Patrick, who wears a worried frown. I begin to wear my own frown when I see Lauren ducking up to the Lawrence's door and ringing the bell. What does she want with them I spit out. Father Patrick shakes his head. She's been a very unhappy woman of late. He replies, smoke break. That night, Mary Bell turns to me as I lie beside her in bed. She wraps her arms around me and kisses me with passion. John, do you love me with all your heart? She whispers, I need you to love me so. I've sacrificed my family and everything I've worked for, everything I thought I wanted, for you. I could lose it all, I shush her. My dear, it's wonderful. We're wonderful together. When I feel you next to me you mean more to me than the whole world. I don't care at all about that world, anymore, except as a thing I long to escape from in order to be with you. When I'm with you, I don't worry about heaven or hell this is better than heaven could be infinitely better, she smiles and snuggles into my shoulder, I love it when you speak so, but it worries me, strangely, 
Why? Because I'm not rich, like your husband I begin to pull my fingers through her hair, unsnarling the tangles we have made, I don't have the words to express the power of my feelings, I think there are none, Mary Bell rubs her hand across my chest, John, you surprise me, I have never known anyone like you, I move away from her, what is that supposed to mean people like me she shushes me, take down your guard, I relate to you, John, you surprise me, you are human, I am silent for a moment, and then speak, during moments when you show signs of regret, the fear of being separated from you consumes my every thought, I place my hand upon hers, Mary Bell, I love you so infinitely that my soul could never function without yours, you have intoxicated me, I could never manage to be apart from you, Mary Bell looks deeply into my eyes and then bursts into tears, I wrap my arms around her and whisper in her ear, do not cry, my dear, I'm not going anywhere, Mrs. Roman looks at me with glowing eyes and kisses me with her whole heart, I love you, she sobs chapter 14 when I rap on Mr. Roman's door the next morning, his face is a brilliant shade of purple, a piece of paper trembles between his shaking hands, I was wondering if I may borrow the paper, I ask quickly, the children want me to read to them about yesterday's festivities, with a roar, Mr. Roman picks up the newspaper and hurls it at me, I bend down to pick it up, as I stand, Mr. Roman stares again at the leaf of paper in his hand, then he lunges at me, swinging at me with both fists, I duck, dancing with his punches, Mr. Roman god damn it, you son of a bitch he screams, he dives at my middle and knocks me to the ground, but I twist from under him before he can pin me down, how could you do this to me he wails, his eyes are filled with madness, I race out of the room, panting, unsure of what to do. The door to his study slams shut behind me, I decide to return to the children, and they lessen, smoke break, that evening, I take my supper with Mr. Roman and Mary Bell, like always, their neighbors also eat with us, adding to the sense of normalcy, but soon the couple must leave, as Mr. Roman walks them to the door, he looks back at me with an angry glare, I grab Mary Bell's arm as she turns to follow her husband. We must not meet tonight, I whisper as he leaves the room, he suspects something, he's gotten a letter, I think, I turn and walk away from her, observing a strict decorum we haven't bothered with for weeks, that night, as the house clock strikes two, I hear a light tap on my door, I recognize the sound I know it is her, rather than answer her call, I turn out my bedside lamp and wait for her to leave. Is she really so ready to risk everything? Smoke break. As I approach the dining room for breakfast the next morning, I hear a loud noise from within. I peek around the corner and see Mary Bell standing over her husband, who is sitting. Her hand is flat on the table, atop a piece of paper. Just look at this revolting thing, she exclaims. I pull my head back and lean against the wall beside the door. An ugly looking fellow, who claims to know you and be under some debt of gratitude, handed it to me as I was passing by the solicitor's garden, I hear as Mary Bell begins to pace the floor, can you believe it, I must ask that you send Master John back to his family without delay, there is a moment of silence as Mr. Roman presumably scans the letter, I remember the night before, how she had sought comfort and I had rejected her. She was so willing to throw it all away last night, 
for a moment of comfort and now was even more willing to give up our affair just to hurt me. He's a clever lad and will easily find work elsewhere. Perhaps he can find a place with Mr. Lawrence or Rob Calvert. I hear the chair scooting backwards over the wood floor as Mr. Roman stands, spoken just like the silly woman you are. What good is it to send him off? Mary Bell gasps. My honor has been outraged. Clyde, do you know how this makes me look? How it makes us look her footsteps travel toward him. John is innocent, but we cannot allow people to think of our household as one that would condone she whispers the last word infidelity. Mr. Roman grunts, either he or I must leave this house, Mary Bell declares. There is the brief sound of a struggle. I close my eyes and grit my teeth against the urge to attack the man who would lay a hand on her. Do you want to create a scandal? Sending him away would only prove the rumors he hisses. Very well, then, Mary Bell sniffs. Perhaps John can take a few months leave. He can go and stay with that timber merchant in the mountains? No, Mr. Roman's voice is like a boulder plopped into a pond. Everything must remain as it is. Don't you care at all about his future? What if he can't find work? Because of your scandal my scandal. That young gentleman is nothing but a teacher what do you care about for his welfare? I haven't had an opinion of him since he refused to marry Lauren, merely on the pretext that she sometimes visited Mr. Lawrence on the sly. Listen here, Lauren has visited Lawrence all but once and long after John rejected her. There's certainly no relationship between them, nor was there ever, in my humble opinion. Mary Bell is simply creating a diversionary scandal. I've seen no evidence to the contrary. I have not seen any letter. I have no idea what this diversionary letter might even have said, nor who is it from. To whom is it addressed? Mary Bell is still but a child. Oh my, Mr. Romans snorts abruptly. R. So there's something between Lauren and Harold Lawrence. It's ancient history, my dear. Mary Bell dismisses the idea. And you said nothing to me Mr. Roman demands. Was it necessary to stir up trouble between two friends just because our dear superintendent's vanity was a little puffed up the sound of his lapicos out to me? What woman is there in our circle of friends to whom he hasn't addressed a few witty letters, with even perhaps a little gallantry in them she continues viciously. Again, the heavy sound of his hand striking her flesh, the thud of her body striking the ground. He wrote you Mr. Roman Roars. He writes a great deal. Mary Bell sniffs. I want those letters at once, he demands. Where are they in the drawer of my writing table? But I'll certainly not give you the key. I'll break it open. I hear his heavy footsteps storming towards me and I duck around the corner. He rushes by, enraged. Mary Bell weeps her sorrow from the floor. And what about love? She sobs. What about love? I think briefly of going to her of comforting her against her fear. But I remember that she has just been trying to force me out, and how close we have come to being discovered. It is time for me to go, smoke break, as I strap my only bag to the back of my bicycle, Mary Bell runs out to me. Am I a fool for love? Is that what you think? Is that what you think she demands? Tears pour down her face. I place my hand beside her face. Of course not. Then I turn and begin to pedal down the long driveway. There is silence behind me, but just for a moment. Then, John she shrieks. Her voice follows me onto the street. Chapter 15 Father Peter A is the deacon of a nearby county. 
A pale-faced man leads me into the father's office. Father Peter sits at his desk in the back, next to a window. The sunlight falling through the window makes the values of his wrinkles into black streaks. He shifts uncomfortably and pinches his lips together. You are very late, he complains. He squints at me. You speak English, yes sir. Father Peter nods. R. Good. He pulls a letter from his desk and nods at it. Paddock's letter is short but sincere. He continues. He asks that I grant you a scholarship. Do you speak Latin it a patriot time? I respond in the affirmative. Empty your pockets, he demands suddenly. I dig through my pockets and pull out some spare change and a playing card. I place the objects on Father Peter's desk. He picks up the card, looks at it, and hands it to me. What is written here he demands. I read from the card, blushing slightly. Amanda Bennett? Café de la Giraffe? 8 o'clock, Father Peter looks at me crossly. I have 320 candidates for this position, the most holy of callings. Now I'm asked to overlook these young men for one who is obviously not cut out for the job, he sighs. But Father Padrick has asked a favor of me on your behalf, and he will have deserved very little after 56 years of apologetic labors if I cannot grant him a single request. Thank you, Father. Quiet. You do not even know what I'm getting at and, anyway, you are thanking the wrong man. Now, wash up and get some sleep, as of tomorrow, I will have fulfilled my obligation, and you will be leaving with me for New York City, my face lights up in a grateful smile. Remember, if I recognize any failure on your part to remain competent, you will meet a very unholy fate, I nod, unconcerned. Yes, father, smoke break. The next morning, I sit beside Father Peter in a black cab. The streets of the city pass by outside. He has two children, a daughter and a son of 19, Father Peter explains. The son is a superlatively elegant young man and an utter madcap. He doesn't know from one hour to the next what he's going to do. Remember, you are not in the country anymore. This is New York City. The cab pulls up beside an enormously tall building. A sign on the gate reads, Hotel Sinclair he owns the building my eyes are wide with astonishment. Yes, he and his family live in the top three floors, Father Peter seems to smirk smugly. We ride up a swift elevator and soon enter into an extravagant foyer. I stare in open mouthed or at the palatial town home. Do try to look sensible, Father Peter reprimands. The servants are watching. Do you want them to think you are a country idiot? For my sake, at least, keep your lips together, I dare them to say anything against me or you, I respond with fervor, a servant approaches us, Mr. Sinclair will see you now, he bows and turns, expecting us to follow, we do, we enter a wide, light-filled study and the man behind the desk rises, he is dark-haired, his eyes bright and searching, he sniffs, the man circles me, looking me over. I'm suddenly aware that the special suit provided me by the Roman seems particularly shabby in the clean and luxurious study. I'm giving you liberty for a couple of days. You cannot be presented to my wife before then, sir. What do you mean I ask? Mr. Sinclair looks up and down my body. If you must get ruined, then ruin yourself now, and I will be quiet of the weakness I show in taking you under my wing. He looks at me with disdain. The morning of the day after tomorrow, my tailor will bring you two suits.
Be sure to tip the young fitter who tries them on, he turns and stares out the window. The city flows away beneath us, beautiful and silent. By the way, do not let these New Yorkers hear your voice. If you say a word, they will find a way of making you look ridiculous. It is a special knack of theirs, he turns, looking me straight in the eyes. Be back at noon on the day after tomorrow. Off with you now, and ruin yourself, he holds up a hand as I turn. Go and order yourself some boots, shirts, and a hat at these addresses, he hands me a card with three addresses written on it. Thank you, sir, I say stiffly. Father Peter silently shakes his hand, and we turn to leave. Mr. Sinclair is an active man, Father Peter explains as we leave. He foresees everything and prefers doing things to giving orders. I stare at the card he's given me and then pocket it. We walk back into the elevator and begin to descend. He's engaging you to spare him the bother of giving orders. That means you will have to know his mind before he does. Be on your guard. The elevator door opens and Father Peter strides out quickly, leaving me puzzled in his wake. It is of no interest what I do in the city for two days, yet on the appointed day I stand in the middle of the Sinclair's foyer, decked out in new clothes. Father Peter accompanies me once more. Mr. Sinclair enters and appraises me with a slight smile. Good. You are dressed well, he gestures to a waiting servant. Take Mr. Marshall's bags to his room, he says. Then he turns to Father Peter. Father, would you have any objections if Mr. Marshall took dancing lessons? Of course not, Father Peter answers. John is not a clergyman, Mr. Sinclair motions for me to follow him. With a nod, Father Peter excuses himself. Mr. Sinclair and I walk down a long wall. How many shirts did you get at the linen drapers? He asks. Two, he nods. Very good, Mr. Sinclair opens a door at the end of the hall, revealing an enormous library. At the far end, an elderly man is shelving books from a newly shipped box. We step within. Very good, Mr. Sinclair says again. He pulls an envelope from his inside jacket pocket and hands it to me. Get 22 more. Here is your first quarter's salary. He turns to face the elderly man at the back. Samuel Samuel straightens and walks over to Mr. Sinclair. Samuel, will you look after Mr. Marshall? Samuel nods his head and gestures me over to a desk in the corner of the library. This is yours, sir, Samuel says, and then he returns to shelving books. After finding my room and unpacking my meager belongings, I bring my papers to the library and pick out a book. I read at the desk that Samuel appointed as mine. A few hours pass. Mr. Sinclair raps on the desk and I jump, startled. He picks up one of the letters I have left on the table and begins to read. You are not quite sure of your spelling. Millennium is written with two N's. But no matter, will you come with me certainly, sir? I'm sure that my confusion shows on my face, but I stand ready to follow him. He looks at my clothes. I have one thing with which to reproach myself. He shakes his head. I did not tell you that at half past five every day you are expected to dress, excuse me I check to make sure that I'm still wearing clothes, I mean you must change into evening wear, for dinner, but no matter tomorrow is another day, he motions for me to follow him out, he leads me back to the main living area, where a gathering of about ten guests socializes in the living room, Mr. Sinclair walks in, and I follow him to his wife, 
Mrs. Levita Sinclair is overweight and unattractive, yet, I sense, from her poise and expression, that she's a powerful woman, used to getting her own way, I bow slightly to her, Mr. John Marshall, I'm pleased to introduce you to my wife, Mrs. Levita Sinclair, it is a great honor, I take her hand with a gentle firmness, I'm sure, she says lightly, and then returns to converse with the woman who sits beside her. I smile slightly and excuse myself as the group begins to gather around the table, waiting for dinner to be served. A tall, good-looking young man enters the room with a bang and a loud exclamation. He is dressed in riding clothes. He walks up to Mrs. Sinclair, who stands at the end of the table. He kisses her hand. You always keep us waiting, Nordbert, she complains mildly. Please accept my apology, mother. I entirely lost track of time while I was riding, but when I realized, I raced as fast as I could so that I might eat my supper while it is hot, Norbert takes his seat next to a young woman only a year or so younger than me. Hello, Claudia, dear sister, he says quietly. As I watch Norbert at his seat, I notice the girl for the first time. Our eyes lock for a moment. Mr. Sinclair turns to his son, Norbert. I must ask you to look after Mr. John Marshall, whom I've just taken on as my personal secretary and whom I hope to make a man of, if that is possible, everyone at the table laughs at Mr. Sinclair's derision, I ignore them with a gracious smile, and then turn my head back to the young woman, she's staring at me, rather unselfconsciously chapter 16 the early morning sun pours through a window next to my desk as I file the remainder of my paperwork and type an email on the laptop that Mr. Sinclair has provided me, the movement of a door prompts me to lift my head, I watch with amusement as Claudia sneaks into the library through a small, innocuous door behind the shelves, she approaches a bookshelf, her hand poised to remove Voltaire's La Princesse de Babylon, HM, I exclaim at her choice, she turns around to see me watching her, then glares and scurries out, the hours pass, and eventually I switch on the desk lamp, shortly thereafter, Norbert slides down the banister of the staircase that runs from the second story landing, he runs over to me, wielding a fencing sword, and points the sword at my throat, there is a time in every man's life when he must put down the pen and mount the horse, this is that time, John, he commands with gravity, and then lowers his sword with a flourish. My father gives us leave until supper, he grins. I can see why Father Peter warned me of Norbert, but I can't help but be charmed by his youthful enthusiasm. What are we waiting for? I answer, smoke break. Later that evening, I sit at the dinner table with the Sinclair family. So, John, I understand that Norbert took you out riding this afternoon. Mr. Sinclair begins, oh yes, it was quite the adventure, I grin, he had me on the stable's gentlest horse, but since he could not tie me to it, I tumbled off the poor mare and fell right onto the middle of the bridge, I hear a small, choked sound, and see Claudia holding back laughter, the horse was afraid of me, I think, I have no problem riding, I wink at her and she bursts into happy peals, her eyes shining with merriment. Mr. Sinclair flashes his rare smile. How charming of you to relate your misadventures to those who might otherwise admire you, he says. Smoke break. The next day, I take my lunch with Mrs. Sinclair and Claudia. We eat quietly, 
creating an atmosphere that seems to suck up amusement like a black hole. The hamburger is wonderful, I say finally, much better than anything we have in the country, Levita Sinclair sniffs. John, it's veal, she explains. I snap my lips together and chew quickly. Later that afternoon, I receive a visit from Father Peter. He walks up to my desk as though he is used to having the run of the Sinclair household. I see you are busy on that interminable lawsuit with Mr. Fryer. I just came by to see how everything was going. But you are busy, so I'll leave you be. He starts to walk away, but I interrupt him. Sir, is dining every day with her ladyship, Levita Sinclair, one of my duties, or is it a kindness on their part? Father Peter stops short. It is an honor he declares, I sigh, for me, sir, it is my least favorite time of day, even Mrs. Sinclair yawns at how dull we find each other, Father Peter's face is set as stone, I'm afraid I will fall asleep and ruin the veal, I joke, perhaps you could convince Mr. Sinclair that it would be better to give me a small allowance for lunch I hear the sound of someone laughing behind the bookshelves. Father Peter and I turn our attention towards the noise. We see Claudia, standing with the book in her hand and smiling at me. With a blush, she scurries out, smoke break, are you almost ready? Dear Mr. Sinclair's voice echoes out to me as I walk past their suite on my way to dinner. Will John be dining with us this evening? She answers. I pause to listen. John always eats with us, Mr. Sinclair answers. Yes, I know, dear. That's what I'm rather concerned with. John is a lovely boy, and I see that everyone has taken to him. I myself dine with him every day. She pauses, but when we have certain people over, I think that it would be best if he dined alone. There is the clink of makeup on her vanity table and the rustling of garments. Mr. Sinclair clears his throat. I'm anxious to carry on with my experiment to the very end, he insists. This fellow is only out of place because his appearance is unfamiliar. As for the rest, he is as good as deaf and dumb, no one will think twice about him, with that astounding recommendation echoing in my mind. I continue down to dinner. This evening the crowd is smaller, but wealthier. They are a pleasant group, laughing and joking with one another as they feast. Despite the general mirth, I feel out of place in the company. I look at the difference in our clothes in their speech, and wish just to disappear. Unfortunately, this is impossible. Claudia stares at me through the entire meal from her place across the table at me. She smirks meaningfully. I glance swiftly at her mother, to find the lady's attention otherwise occupied, and then deliberately wink back at Claudia. She finds me amusing, at least chapter 17 that weekend, Mr. Sinclair treats me to his opera seats, which brings me to a lavish and close-in box that he keeps on permanent reservation. The following Monday, he calls me into his office. When I walk in, Mr. Sinclair is sitting at his desk. He stands and smiles at me. So I hear that you are the son of a rich Texas oil merchant, he jokes. My box neighbors assure me that this is so. My face twitches at my embarrassment in being caught at deception. Forgive me, sir, I begin. I didn't start this rumor, I swear to you, I wanted to fit in better. You see, sir, to be fair and honest, I have been indignant that I do not lie. I didn't start the rumor, but I'm happy to see it perpetuated. My apologies, Mr. Sinclair interrupts me. I know, 
I know, he says kindly. He seems almost pleased. It's up to me now to give some consistency to the story. But I've one favor to ask of you. It will not cost a bare half hour of your time, and of course I'll pay you, surprised at his understanding, I nod my head eagerly and pay close attention. Every evening, when there is an opera, go and stand in the vestibule when people of the best society are exiting, I look at him with question marks in my eyes, I still notice at times some provincial mannerisms in you. He points his finger at me, you must get rid of them. Besides, it is not such a bad thing to know, at least by sight, certain people of importance, go to the box office and make yourself known, they have a pass ready for you, smoke break, the months pass and I manage to do as Father Peter bade me to trade lightly and anticipate Mr. Sinclair's whims, in the winter, Levada, Nordbiot, and Claudia take a short trip to Vermont to stay at the family's ski lodge. Mr. Sinclair stays behind to mind his business, and I of course stay with him. On the date that the trio returns from the mountains, snow falls on the streets of the city. I watch from the window as people, looking like ants, scurry to provision themselves for the storm. Then the limo pulls up to the door, and Levida, Claudia, and Norbert emerge. I run down to the front door to meet them. He is in the drawing room, I announce when they burst into the foyer damp with snow. After shading their outer layers, they hurry to see him. I trust you had a good holiday Mr. Sinclair asks when his family bustles into his study. Never the same without you. Father, Claudia says shyly. She walks over to her father and claims a kiss. You needn't have worried about me. I had John here to keep me more than enough company. Is that so when he wasn't making a name for himself at the opera? He indulged me with all the latest gossip. Claudia giggles while her mother steps forward to give Mr. Sinclair a tender embrace. Well then Norbert says, giving a short wave and hurrying to the door off on some mischief already, I assume. Claudia turns to me. Mr. Marshall, are you coming to the Davins party tonight? I shake my head. I've not had the honor of being introduced to Mr. Devon, as yet. She laughed prettily. Well, you have managed to make quite a reputation for yourself, just the same. Just yesterday, we saw Mr. Devon on his way back from holiday, and he asked Norbert to bring you to the party, in that case, I suppose that I haven't a choice in the matter I tease, she laughs, oh no, none at all, smoke break, snow falls as we approach the apartment building in which the Devon's penthouse resides, we enter at our finest, Norbert and I on either side of Claudia. A servant takes our hats and coats while the butler leads us to the main room. The penthouse is stunning with high vaulted ceilings and a wide space for dancing in the center. Crystal and glass glint from every corner of the vast room. In the corner a seven-piece jazz band tunes up softly. Claudia is quickly swept up in conversation with her acquaintances, and Norbert, with a wink, begins pursuit of the most gorgeous woman in the room. I saunter into an adjoining room finding within it a small bar and three men who lean against it, looking out at the main room with something akin to fear. You must agree, she is the belle of the party, one of the men says, as I walk up to the bar and quietly order a drink. Another man laughs. Even Louisa Charles is well aware that she's been taken down a notch. She seems to have full command of the pleasure she feels of her triumph, says the third, looking very hard at the doorway. 
You could say that she's afraid of seeming attractive to anyone who speaks to her. Receiving my drink, I peek past the men to see who they are talking about although I'm already beginning to suspect. Why? Of course the second man exclaims. That's the whole art of seduction, the third man nodded. Her air of reserve implies how charming she could show herself to be, given a worthy suitor, and who could be worthy of the sublime Claudia the first man chimed. Claudia I whisper to myself, and then I see her, she is beautiful, she dances gracefully with a pedigreed young man, but her eyes roam the room, I walk towards her, mesmerized, the music stops, and so does she, her mouth moves in a charming apology and the young man smiles as though, by excusing herself, she has given him some great compliment, come sit with me, a young woman suggests, she pats the open cushion next to her on a soft, swayed divan. I sit, never taking my eyes from Claudia as she walks toward us. Louisa Claudia exclaims, that dear boy nearly danced my legs into the ground. Look my heels are already beginning to wear. Claudia lifts her dainty foot, and I glimpse the glowing white flesh above her knee. Then she sits beside me with a measured exhalation. You poor dear, Louisa drawls. Claudia turns towards me. Isn't this party the best of the season? It seems that everyone nearby turns to look at me, the man who is lucky enough to be acknowledged by Claudia. I make my voice cold, ignoring the jealous and incredulous stares of the men that seem to gravitate toward her. I'd scarcely be a good judge of that, Claudia. My life is taken up with writing. This is the first party I've ever seen of such magnitude. She nods her head, chastened. You are a wise man. Mr. Marshall, you look on all these balls with the eye of a philosopher, like Jean Rousseau, human follies astonish but do not tempt you, I sniff, Jean Rousseau was nothing but a fool and a hypocrite, he failed to truly understand the nature of society, rather, he viewed it with the heart of a lackey risen above his station, Claudia looks at me from the corner of her eye, he wrote the contract social, and while he preached the overthrow of royal rights and privileges, he went off his head with joy if a duke altered the course of his after-dinner constitutional to see one of his friend's homes, and with that, I excuse myself, the last thing I need is to sit around listening to the young girl's idealistic gibberish. But I walk slowly, as usual, and so I hear Louisa's next words. It is truly unfortunate that such a handsome young man cannot cultivate the manners and position suitable for eligibility. Claudia exhales through her nose. Have you not thought that maybe it is the manners and position of all these eligible gentlemen that is truly unfortunate? I cannot hide a small smile that rises to my lips. As I exit the room I'm assailed by a man in a dark suit. Well John, there you are. I hardly expected to see you here. He says in an ironic voice that I immediately recognize, Seth I embrace my only real friend, what brings you all the way to the city a look of embarrassment comes over his features, it is no matter, he responds, have a smoke as we walk back through the great room to the balcony, I see that Louisa and Claudia have found partners once more, and are dancing side by side, yet Claudia's eyes soon find me, and she and her young friend follow us out to the balcony before long. Wasn't Che Guevara some sort of a butcher, the revolutionary that he was she asks. I look at Claudia with contempt, in certain people's eyes, and yet, not so great a butcher as the then existing regime. He, at least, 
had a sense of justice, Claudia sighs, you are so young and yet so brilliant, she looks around the ballroom in contemplation, with a wink, Seth lays a hand on Louise's elbow and steers her off, there's no true passion left in this country, that's why people get so bored, the greatest cruelties are committed, yet not from cruel motives, Claudia sighs, that is much worse than otherwise, I should think, I contend, when people commit crimes, they should at least find some pleasure in committing them, one cannot find the slightest justification for crime, except on such grounds, Claudia, recognizing my zealous idealism, looks at me with longing, I see nothing that can confer honor on a man except sentence of death, it is the only thing that cannot be bought, she says suddenly, flushing with a passion of her own, anything can be bought, I answer, even death, she sighs, we have either too much or too little, she states, everything is either an utter disaster or truly sublime and in perfect harmony, even the way we feel, perhaps, in the future, things will be different, I doubt it very much, I say coldly, we are as we are, we are trapped, in a way, yes, we are, aren't we Claudia looks dreamily at the night sky chapter 18 the morning sun slowly creeps up over the window grate as I sit, typing a long message, a sound tells me that someone is standing before my desk, from the edge of my gaze, I can tell it is Claudia, I take no notice of her, if you could be so kind and pull a volume from the top shelf for me she says finally, the history of man without looking at her, I move the ladder and climb up to find her book, you are clearly thinking about something very interesting, Mr. Marshall, tell me, please, what is it, I'll be discreet, I swear I will, I pull the book silently and begin to climb back down, what could possibly have turned you, you who are ordinarily so cold, into a creature inspired, you have a fire in you this morning, she concludes, I hand Claudia her book, did Danton do well to steal, the revolutionaries of Piedmont, of Spain, should they have compromised the people by committing crimes I pace before her, anguished by her ignorance, must a man who wants to drive ignorance and crime from this earth pass through his life like a whirlwind and do nothing but evil Claudia has nothing but smiles for my passion, she loves a revolutionary, but still hasn't a clue of the torment it takes to create one, I despise her, but I want her, too, is that all I ask coldly, and then sit back at my desk, smoke break, in the warmth of the rare sunny winter afternoon, I head up to the Sinclair's rooftop garden and sit myself at a table, soon, I'm gazing off into the skyscrapers, deep in thought, I beg you to tell me what is so interesting that it occupies so much of your mind, Claudia demands, where has she come from, I sigh, I'm afraid it's not my place to even think about such things, let alone make my thoughts public, oh no, you must tell me, I'm hardly public, she says with the greatest innocence, I smile a little at her joke, well, as you wish, through my position as Mr. Sinclair's secretary, I have more than once written to the two lawyers arranging the terms of a marriage contract concerning Mr. Bernard and yourself, she blushes, wondering what I must think of her, I look directly into her eyes, although I find your intellectual conversation most stimulating, I cannot imagine a man such as Mr. Bernard receiving it with the same appreciation, I conclude, Claudia takes a step forward and then her leg seems to crumple beneath her, oh, ah she gasps, I rush to her side, 
Are you badly hurt? She grimaces. It is nothing. Probably just a sprain. She lifts her arms and I help to pull her up. If you could kindly escort me inside she leans into me and I'm compelled to wrap an arm around her waist. Her arm slings around my shoulder, her chest swells as she breathes deep, and so we walk together, smoke break, that evening, when I finish up my work on the marriage contracts, I hand Mr. Sinclair the papers, he briefly looks them over, this is excellent work, John, you are excused until morning, I leave, eager to have a drink before bed, in the kitchen, I hear Norbert's voice raised. We have learned from history that we must beware of such energy from such people. If a revolution breaks out, he will not hesitate to destroy us. You are such a hypocrite, Norbert Claudia attests. You always treat him as though you're best friends, when secretly you're afraid. I enter the room, and cross to the wine cupboard. I pour myself a glass of Cabernet from an opened bottle, to silence. Then I exit, feeling Claudia's eyes upon my back. Dear diary, almost done, smoke break, as I walk slowly to my room, I hear her light footsteps behind me, I turn when she is directly behind me, oh, Mr. Marshall, she looks at me with young eyes, her mind clearly blank, I raise my eyebrows and take a sip of my glass, we were talking about you we were, my brother is a fool, she gasps, I'm all too used to fools by now, I say coolly. She seems to struggle with herself, her mouth opening and closing. Finally, she jabs her hand into her pocket and pulls out a slip of paper that has been folded several times. Here her breath explodes as she hands it to me. Here, I didn't know if I'd have the nerve to give it to you, but I've been carrying it around with me ever since the party, and well, just read it, just read it. Then, looking at my distant face, my amused smirk, she turns and runs back to the kitchen, smoke break, later the same week, Claudia storms into the library and stomps to my desk, it has been days now, Mr. Marshall, and I've still not heard anything from you in response to my letter, I demand a definite answer concerning your intentions, she slaps a new letter onto my desk and scurries out, I read the letter, smiling, it states, smoke break, dearest John, I want to speak to you. I must speak to you tonight, at 1am exactly, see that you are in the rooftop garden, smoke break, at quarter to one, the moon finds me pacing back and forth in the garden, I look behind me at the door, all the lights in the house are now out, I look up at the full moon which illuminates the sky, slowly, the door creaks open, a dark figure slips into the garden, it is Claudia by now I know her movements. She joins me in the dark shadow of a thick bush. You made it, she whispers gratefully. I try to wrap my arms around her, but she pushes me away. No, no, she hisses. Then she starts away. What have you got in the side of your coat she demands? Pointing. A pistol, I admit. Oh, the silence passes in awkwardness. What have you done with my letter she asks finally. I've mailed it, hidden in a Protestant Bible to a close friend whom I can trust, good gracious, why all the precaution I can tell that she'd wished that I'd saved it, as a keepsake, how am I to know if you can be trusted I answer, this could be a plot to destroy my spirit, or my good name, Claudia laughs, although she does not explain why, her laughter is low, and dangerous, without thinking, I pull her close to me, 
In an instant, we are kissing passionately in the darkness. Chapter 19 That Sunday, I stand at the altar next to Father Peter. I look up when Claudia walks in with her mother, almost as if I can smell her presence. The two sit towards the front of the congregation. Claudia glances up at me and immediately looks away. I stare straight at her throughout the service, unafraid, as she coldly avoids my gaze. Finally, Father Peter makes his final remarks of the service. Even the prophet Moses had to live by the word of the Lord in order to reach the promised land, and from this we learn that it is our actions that guide us to salvation. The organ indicates that the service is over. The congregation gets up to leave. I try to catch Claudia before she leaves the church, but she manages to escape, leaving me standing alone in front of the exiting crowd. I glance back at Father Peter, who is frowning at me disapprovingly. At brunch that morning, Bernard, Louisa, myself, and all the Sinclairs but Claudia are there. What has happened to Claudia? Mr. Sinclair asks his wife, Levada sniffs. She claims to have been taken ill. Beauty is so delicate, Mr. Sinclair says jovially. Do you not agree? Bernard Bernard politely laughs. Most definitely, sir. Like a fine aria, her delicacy is what makes her ever more precious, I add. Quite right, Mr. Marshall, Sinclair congratulates me. One can always rely on you to cleverly illustrate the phenomenon that dumbfounds one most. It is a true gift, yes, you are a blessed creature, Marshall. Norbert adds with a sarcastic sneer. I glance at Norbert with annoyance, he arrogantly returns the look. That evening, Claudia joins the company for cocktails. When she sees that I'm still there, however, she immediately leaves the room. I follow her silently as she runs up the staircase. She races into her father's game room, and then grabs a pool stick and holds it in front of her. I slow down, holding my hands in the air as I walk toward her. She moves away, I'll keep your secret, I swear, I say sincerely, I'd never speak a word to you again, if it would ensure your reputation wouldn't suffer, Claudia sets down the pool stick in a moment of weakness, I cannot believe I have given myself to the first comer she wails dramatically, the first comer I shout, I pull a decorative sword off the wall and point it at her neck, she looks into my eyes and begins to tear with delight at my jealousy. She puts her hands on the sword and slowly points it away as she moves closer to me. I look down at her in confusion. Claudia stands face to face with me. So I have just been on the point of being killed by my lover. John, you are truly the noblest man of our age. She grabs my face and kisses me passionately. Suddenly, Levada's voice calls from the hall. Claudia, where are you? Dear Claudia jumps out of my embrace, startled and runs out of the room. I can hear Levada's voice as her daughter rushes to her. Claudia, what is going on? Why are you so flushed? I'm feeling a tad warm, is all. Claudia's voice is muffled by the door, which she's closed behind her. There's is no time for that now. We'll be late for the curtain. I'm tired of these games. I step into the hallway. Claudia's face drops. Hello, Mr. Marshall, Levada says casually. Enjoying your evening? I hope quite, Levada nods and then turns to her daughter. We really must be off. Come, Claudia. Claudia follows her mother, looking over her shoulder at me. Later that night, I tap lightly on Claudia's door. She opens it wide to me. My darling, she gasps. 
I embrace her in a passionate heat, leading her to the bed, smoke break, when we are done, she looks over at me dreamily, then, with a face grown suddenly grave, she takes a pair of scissors from her nightstand and cuts off a large lock of her hair, you are my master, I'm your slave, she intones, her voice makes me shiver, I beg you, forgive me for having tried to rebel, I want to remind myself that I'm your handmaid, if ever again my pride should lead me astray, show me this hair, she pauses, closing my fingers over the lock, say to me, it's no longer a question of love, it does not matter what emotion your heart is feeling at the moment you have sworn to obey me, you are bound to obey, we lie together for much of that night, but when I notice the beginning of an early dawn, I rise, I pull on my clothes quietly and carefully, so as not to disturb the sleeping Claudia, then I slowly pull the door open and leave, I leave the hair sitting in a lonely clump on her dresser, as I'm only part way down the ladder, I hear a hissing behind me, Claudia is framed in the doorway, clasping her bed sheets around her with one arm, with her other arm she brandishes the lock of hair, look what your servant sends you, she says quietly, it's the token of my eternal obedience, I smile at her uneasily and take the hair, then I turn and walk silently away, smoke break, for the next few days, I avoid Claudia with every trick I have, but one afternoon, as I'm absorbed with work at my desk, our next meeting becomes inevitable, she walks into the library and storms over to me, you wish to speak to me she demands, I blink, excuse me if you have no sense of honor, you can ruin me, or at least attempt to, it won't prevent me from being sincere, I no longer love you, sir, my crazy fancy deceived me, clearly, she storms out again, I watch her leave, relief and disappointment warring within me, that afternoon, after I finish with my work, Levada calls to me from the drawing room as I walk down the hall, John I stop at the entrance to the room, Claudia is in there with her, yes, madam I avoid my lover's gaze, will you bring me that pamphlet on the table there by the door I turn to the table and accidentally knock over the vase, the vase shatters on the floor, Levada shrieks and runs over to the destroyed vase, Claudia follows with a small smile on her face, it was old Japanese porcelain, Levada wails, it came from my great aunt, the abbess of Chelles, it was a present from the Dutch to the Duke of Orleans when he was regent, I shrug, it's destroyed forever, and so has the feeling which once was master of my heart, please accept my apologies for all the follies such feelings made me commit, I walk away without remorse, Levada turns to Claudia as I go, one would really think that this Mr. Marshall is proud and pleased with what he's done, chapter 20 I'm getting dressed the next morning when there's a knock at the door, I open it to reveal the servant Samuel standing there with a large package in his hands, this arrived for you, sir, he says, I take the package from Samuel, and he leaves, I carry the parcel to my bed and tear it open, Inside is a huge stack of letters, I pull one out and begin to read, smoke break, that evening, we have dinner with Louisa Charles, among other guests, I'm seated next to Louisa and enjoy her flirtation throughout the evening, although I can't be sure that she knows of what passed between me and Claudia, it is certain that the fading flower enjoys my attention, Claudia watches me from the corner of her eye, full of jealousy her hands tremble slightly, I pay her no mind, 
wrapped up in my conversation with Louisa. Claudia, are you cold? Levada inquires. Claudia's hands shake even more with her distress. I might have caught a slight chill, even her voice wavers. Nothing serious. When we retire to the drawing room, Claudia walks to the window, turning around to see if I have followed. I chuckle quietly to myself, and turn to join Louisa on the sofa. That is quite a story you tell, I say to her, continuing our previous conversation. Oh, but that is not all, she says, with a gleam in her eye, laying her hand lightly on my leg. No the shoes had been taken to another man to be altered for size, she continues. Can you imagine that? I had to send a man all the way down there in the snow to pick them up for the evening. What a nightmare I exclaim falsely. Smoke break. That night, I spend the darkness alone in my room, writing letters. Smoke break. The next day, I ride my bicycle to Louise's home and ring the bell. The porter opens the door and I hand him the letter. Before the porter has the opportunity to close the door, I have leaped back onto my bike and am racing away. That evening, Louisa Charles and I share a private box at the opera. I recently saw Augustin Benoit. It was not to be believed, I say, before the show began. I saw it, too, Louisa says. It was wholly inferior to the novel. I'm surprised to hear that you've read it. Augustin Benoit is one of the best stories of its kind, which did not prevent Napoleon from pronouncing it to be a novel written for lackeys. She smirks at me. I look at her in shock, amazed by her knowledge. Then the lights go out, and the overture begins. The Sinclair box is several boxes down from Louise's. Levada Sinclair is seated there, next to Claudia. Claudia twists to face Louise's box, trying to catch a glimpse. When the opera is done, Louisa and I stand among a crowd of theatergoers, waiting for our carriage to pull up. Remember, sir that people who love me must not love a revolutionary. They may, at most, accept such men as a social necessity. Our carriage pulls up. I follow Louisa into the carriage, feeling somewhat annoyed. Later that week, Louisa and I take a walk in her father's garden. We have both avoided mention of your correspondence to me, she says. Although I respect the sanctity of what has been left and spoken, I'm slightly puzzled. How is it that you mentioned London and Richmond to me in a letter you wrote just last night my face drops at my folly. I quickly rack my brains for an explanation. I look into Louisa's eyes. It is quite simple, really? I answer finally, excited by the discussion of the most sublime, the most lofty interest of the human mind, my own mind, in writing to you, may perhaps have become distracted. She smiles, satisfied. Of course, that makes perfect sense, Louisa takes my hand and we continue our walk through the garden chapter 21 later that day, I sit at my desk, writing, Samuel walks into the library with a letter, I see Claudia at the doorway when Samuel hands me the letter, as Samuel exits, he bows slightly to his mistress, she sails by him, ignoring the gesture, she rips the letter from my hand, this is what I cannot endure, she hisses, you have forgotten me completely, me, your fee and k, your behavior, sir, is shocking I stand up, she steps back, but I grab her arms and pull her to me, Claudia surrenders to my embrace and begins to sob against my chest, I hold her tightly, feeling a sting in my eye, I'm so sorry, I whisper, 
As we make love in her bedroom that evening, I stop and look down at her. Claudia good heavens, what she pants, what guarantee will you give me she growls at me. Can this not wait for a more convenient moment I have to know, before we go any further, I have been miserable for a month, she complains, I never want to endure such torture ever again, Claudia pulls me down to her, and the rest of the night is silence, smoke break, when we are at the opera the next night, Claudia leans over and whispers in my ear, you wish for a guarantee she takes my hand and puts it on her lap. I feel myself light up with joyful surprise, she continues to whisper in my ear, elope with me, let's go off to Vegas, I shall be ruined forever, disgraced, disgrace me, she pleads, I stare at her, stone-faced, silent, smoke break, that night, back at the Sinclair's, Claudia sits at my desk, I pace before her and then turn to face her, once we are on the way to Vegas, once you are disgraced, how do I know that you will still love me I begin to pace once more, I'm not a heartless brute, I continue, to ruin your reputation will only be a further cause for grief, that's not important, she insists, I sigh, it is not your position in society that is the obstacle, it is your own character, her face falls with desperate disbelief, then I'm so unworthy of your nonsense, you speak only nonsense, forget these foolish thoughts, Cut the cord that attaches your heart to me, she sobs, that would be murder, tears stream down her face, I come closer and lift her face up to mine, what you are saying I ask gently, it is true, she insists, near hysterics, we are bound by another life, do you doubt me now, is this not a guarantee Claudia smiles slightly through her tears, I will write my father about this, we cannot go on deceiving him, but he'll throw me out of the house I exclaim, horrified, he is within his rights, but I'll give you my arm, and we will leave by the front door, together, in the full light of day, I grab her arm and shake her, you must not do this, at least put it off a few days, Claudia turns to me, honor calls, I know my duty, I must carry it out at once, your honor is safe, I insist, don't rush anything, Claudia shushes me, that is no longer important, my dear, she falls into my stiff embrace, the next morning, I'm asleep in my bed when a loud knock on the door suddenly awakens me, I jump out of bed and open the door, Samuel is standing in the hall, Mr. Sinclair needs to see you, now, he says, when I enter Mr. Sinclair's office, he is standing at the far end of the room, at my entrance, he lunges towards me, you miserable wretch he cries, but I stand told before him, I'm no angel, that is certain, but I'm a young man, and no one understands my mind except that lovable creature, we care for each other, lovable, the day you found her lovable you should have run for the hills I tried, but but what, my daughter is going to marry a PA, my grandchildren are going to be the sons of a nanny, a tutor I stare, stone-faced, as Mr. Sinclair paces quietly. He walks up to me and we stand nose to nose, you ought to have gone away, sir, at the first sign, it was your duty to go, you are the lowest of the low, you are within your right to be angry with me, but I will no longer stand for your abuse, I conclude, I quit, I turn my back and march out, back in my room, I pace back and forth, not ready yet to pack, 
My door opens and someone walks towards where I stand. I turn violently, drawing my pistol. It's Claudia. I set the holster back on my nightstand. Claudia, it would be wise for you to leave, I say brusquely. That's not necessary, she says softly. I have just spoken with my father. I told him that if you left, I would leave with you. Claudia reaches out to me. I stare at her, dumbfounded, trapped. Before I know it, I have torn her arms from me and am running out the door. I grab my bicycle and do not stop riding until I reach the church where Father Peter resides. Soon, I'm sitting in his kitchen, drinking a warm cup of coffee and trying to calm myself. A troubled mind sleeps little, he notes, and then sighs. I thought perhaps to blame myself. I thought I had guessed this love affair. I exhale loudly into my coffee cup. It has been over a week now. I want this to end. Father Peter shrugs. You are welcome here for as long as you'd like. He looks at me for a moment and pulls an opened letter from his shirt pocket. Perhaps this will ease your temper. I look it over quickly, breathing in the words like they are life. It came for you via courier last night while you were sleeping. I took the liberty of opening it in case it was important enough to wake you. I frown. And did you not think it important that subjective, my face lights up with joy as the meaning of the letter sinks in. I've been made a partner at Mr. Sinclair's hotel. He does not wish to drive me out, but instead wishes to bring me into his family. What is subjective about that Father Peter frowns as I stare joyfully at the letter chapter 22 as soon as I'm able, I ride my bicycle to meet with Claudia in Central Park. She waits for me in the shadow of a tall tree. I can hardly believe it is my John, in the flesh, she exclaims, kissing me in broad daylight. But how will I live apart from you when you are leaving me again so soon? Must you go this weekend I must? I brush the tip of her nose with my finger. Do not pine for me I will be back soon, Claudia pouts. I know, but it's not fair. I smile, trying to coax a happy feeling in her brain. You must be happy for me and our future, can I come with you? No, you mustn't. This is private business, and I must see to some personal matters. Don't worry I won't be gone long, I will live for the day of your return, I smile. Good, that will be sure to keep me from staying away too long, smoke break. Seth greets me at the front door of his cabin when I knock. My friend has finally become a man of class he jokes. I'm embarrassed at having offered you such a small position when you have achieved such riches on your own, I smile at his humor. Even though fate has granted me fortune, I will never forget your kindness, my friend, Seth smirks at me, and love, has fate granted you that yes, that, too, I say hurriedly. Love of what, though Seth smirks once more, my dear friend, your cynicism is not lost on me, if passion does not exist. Then can love, I have passion with this woman, so I must be in love, Seth chuckles, there is no doubt of your passion, but passion can make men vain, what is so wrong with vanity I ask, conspicuously preening myself, vanity, John, is the seed of loneliness, I laugh, well then I'm in luck, with you as my friend, I shall never be lonely, with vanity as your vice, you are sure to be, he quips, I can see the point to him. Wise Seth, my one and only friend, oh how I miss the freshness of your company. When are you moving down to the city Seth shrugs and changes the subject. I interject, 
I had a dream about you, just the night before last, a dream of glory and riches. You were in the dream, but you were a woman. Can you believe that? A woman called Margaret, perhaps in some other life, I suppose, but you never cease to fascinate me. I wish I could give you all the wealth, glory and fame one of these days. Nonetheless, I do try. You are my only friend as well. I have always wished we could see one another more often. But circumstances are circumstances. Same, here, Seth, same here, I say, smoke break. When I raise my hand to knock on the Sinclair's door, the door opens beneath my knuckles before they can strike. Claudia, dressed all in brown and black, rushes into my arms. I soothe her worriedly. What is it I ask? She pulls me into the elevator and breaks into heavy sobs. It's father she cries. He he got a letter while you were gone and now he refuses to let us be together. He is going to remove you from your position. He is going to sue you for fraud. What? Where is the letter? Who is it from I demand? My father. A she pulls a paper from her pocket. Who is she she demands? Who is she to you be quiet? I command. I have no idea. Certainly not your mother. The letter is written in Mary Bell's hand. My heart feels like it has turned to ice in me. Dear Mr. Sinclair, what I owe to all that is sacred and right obliges me to approach you with the most uncomfortable of news. The sorrow I feel must be overborne by my sense of duty. The conduct about which you desire to know has been, in fact, reprehensible, and more so than I can say. Poor creature, it was with the help of the most consummate hypocrisy, and by seducing a weak and unhappy woman, that he sought to make a position for himself to become somebody better. I am bound in conscience to believe that one of his methods of success in a household is to seek and then to seduce the woman who has most influence there, under cover of a show of disinterestedness and by making use of phrases from novels, his great and only object is to arrive at securing control over the master of the house and his fortune, he leaves behind him unhappiness and everlasting regret. Sincerely, Mary Bell Roman I throw down the letter and slide down the side of the elevator until I'm crouching. I hear the sound of unsolvable wailing, and realize that it is me. In her own hand I shriek. I can't believe it's true I know you would never Claudia gasps. She drops to my side and wraps her arms around me. I shake her off and stand. Leave me I command. Clearly I'm the most wretched of creatures. The elevator door opens and I rush out into the lobby. Where on earth are you going she cries, I have no answer, I dream that night that I'm awake, and the true love of my life shoots me in the head chapter 23 it is Sunday, blind, deaf, and um, I stand before the old, familiar church, inside, Father Padrett's voice gives the sermon, I barge inside, his eyebrows rise when he sees me enter, but he continues speaking, he is of no concern to me. I walk swiftly through the congregation, my gaze fixed on my object, soon I stand directly behind her, Father Padrett's voice ceases as he becomes distracted, I pull my pistol from my coat, thinking the most disturbing intrusive thoughts, the letter, that letter from Mary Bell, whom I have abandoned for the true love of my life, seducing my way up to glory and fame, R, the letter said just as much, that I do in fact use my charm and seduction, just as the young prostitute had taught me, oh so much, from the start, it is the only way to getting what we want, no, John he cries, 
By some instinct, Mary Bell turns to see me just as my finger clenches tight on the trigger. The gun recoils in my hand as the shot rocks the church. Mary Bell gasps, clawing at the blood that flows from her chest, and sinks to the floor like a deflating balloon. Smoke break, my cell is clean, brightly lit, and impossible. A noise by the door causes me to open my eyes. Claudia walks in. You again, I sigh. Do not be angry with me, my darling. I'm frustrated. Please, grant me my final days in peace, I plead. They needn't be your final days, Claudia begs in turn. I look at her without speaking, shaking my head. No harm was really done, she insists. I stand. You are insane, I accuse her. What do you know of it? I'm insane only in my love for you, she exclaims. Her voice quiets to a whisper. I have consulted with one of the guards on the possibility of procuring your escape, she admits. I sigh once more. Stop talking nonsense and leave me be, she smiles sadly. I will return when you are in a better mood. Until then she kisses me lightly on the cheek. Smoke break, I don't know what day or time it is. I'm sleeping when the sound of movement comes again from the door. Go away I moan. She slowly steps towards me. It is not Claudia. I sit up, squinting my eyes to make her out. How can this be I whisper? I'm not dead yet a smile graces Mary Bell's angelic face. No one told you I shake my head. This is a dream, she shakes her head. Many times I wished you were a better shot. Death would be a welcome guest over the pain you've given my shoulder. I stand as the reality of the moment finally sinks in. You are alive, my love. I beg you, please forgive me. I sob, and bury myself in her arms. Who would ever have said that I would write that shameful letter I have always loved you. I have never loved anyone but you. Is that possible? What of your young fiancé? I read about the two of you in the society page. I shake my head. It is true only in appearance. She is not the mistress of my heart. Her face glows with joy and we kiss. It is more real than anything I've ever felt. In a few days time will be my trial. I'm sure they will sentence me to death. I admit my fear. No, I ignore her faith in the possibility of my future. What sort of future would there be for me? Anyway, now that I have touched you again, I'm ready to face death, I admit. And yet, I leave behind the child in Claudia's womb. Will you look after the child for me, and tell it of its father? I know that you are dead, so how might I ask you for this sort of promise? Because I do not believe you are dead. That's why. See, Mr. Sinclair's hatred of me gets fixed in my son's brain. Mary Bell shakes her head. If we were to die here and now she insists, who knows what we will find in another life. But you must go on, and do this for me. She sighs. I will do whatever will make you happy. I smile and kiss her shoulder. I shall never have been so happy as I am now. A condemned man, together with his true love, you've never been so happy. She smiles, looking at me tenderly. I hold tight to her shoulder and then let her go. Instead of clasping to my heart this lovely arm that holds me to my life, I let the future bear me away from you, a tear falls from Mary Bell's eyes, I should have died without knowing what happiness would mean, but instead you came to see me here, and now I remember everything I'm leaving behind, a guard opens the door, he indicates to Mary Bell that she must leave, I'm so sorry, angel, I'm so sorry, I cry. 
I hold her to me and kiss her one last time. The guard escorts Maribel out. She turns back to me, reluctant to leave. Swear on the love you bear for me not to attempt your life, I command. Remember that you have to live for the sake of my child. She nods, her eyes glowing with tears. Then she exits, and the prison door slams shut. If we still have sensations after our death, I should rather lie to rest. I'd overcome all of life's fears and no longer be content with the gloomy happiness that pride affords. That may be reason enough to explain why I ran headlong throughout my life without holding on to what was important to me. Who am I to do such a thing? Look at me now. I cannot fathom the thought. The fading tracks of your footsteps cause my wet bones to quiver in this cloudless heaven. No end.